Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 1. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States of America. Fascinating fellow. Very interesting. He had uh, uh, just an amazing life. Um, his, his father was the second president of the United States, uh, John Adams. Actually, there was a lot of pressure placed on him, and, uh, but he, uh, you know, he did his best, although he, he always felt it wasn't enough. When he was 10 years old in 1778, he went with his father, uh, John Adams, to Europe. Uh, he was, um, uh, remember, his, his father was the leader in promoting American independence, and then he was sent to Europe to uh, try to get French support in the American Revolution and Dutch, uh, Dutch loans. So it was decided uh, that John Quincy would go with his father, or Johnny as they called him, because you know, his, his dad had been gone a lot when he was young. His dad had been off in Philadelphia in the Continental Congress, and they, it was decided that he was old enough and he should be with his father, and he could get his schooling in Europe. He spent many years in Europe, I believe about 18 years, and this was the beginning of that. Much of his childhood was spent in Europe, and... Uh, uh, in Fran in, in this time, in the early time, in France and the Netherlands, when he was 14, he uh, he went as the secretary of Francis Dana, the first U.S. ambassador to Russia. So he's only he was only 14. He did that because he could speak French, and uh, so that was another. You know, he spent actually a fair number of years in Russia. His wife Louisa was born in England. Of her parents were American, and she's the only foreign born first lady. Uh, John Quincy Adams uh, was the first president inaugurated wearing pants and not breeches. Breeches don't go all the way to your ankle. Uh, you know, the styles always change. He, uh, he, as president, he installed a billiards table and a chessboard in the White House. He was known for his early morning naked swims across the Potomac River in Washington City and uh, in his latter years. It, and at age 58, he swam across the Potomac in one hour. He's the only former president, after you know, after he served in the White House, to serve in the in the House of Representatives. He was the lawyer for the slaves in the famous Amistad case in 1841, which he won. He's the only president elected with fewer electoral votes and fewer popular votes than his opponent, Andrew Jackson, in the 1824 election. He was, he's considered the most outspoken opponent of slavery, and this was in his final years. He had two brothers and two sons, and they all, all four of them died of alcoholism, so he had a lot of tragedy in his life, very tragic. He also suffered from depression, some debilitating depression, but, uh, you know, it, he, was a, he fought it. He fought it through activity and through uh, trying to achieve things. One of his one of his finest biographers, in my opinion, Harlow Giles Unger, wrote this about John Quincy Adams, quote, He served under Washington and with Lincoln. He lived with Ben Franklin, lunched with Lafayette, Jefferson and Wellington. He walked with Russia's Tsar and talked with Britain's king. He dined with Charles Dickens, taught at Harvard, and was American minister to six European countries. He negotiated the peace that ended the War of 1812, freed the African prisoners on the slave ship Amistad, served 16 years in the House of Representatives, restored free speech in Congress, and led the anti-slavery movement. 
He was the sixth president of the United States. John Quincy Adams was all these things and more. John Quincy Adams was born on July 11, 1767, in Braintree, later renamed Quincy, Massachusetts. In 1775, when he was eight years old, he watched the Battle of Bunker Hill uh, with his mother from the top of Penn, Penn's Hill above the family farm. As a boy, he learned to ride a horse, hunt, and shoot a musket, and he enjoyed swimming in Black's Creek. At that Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, Joseph Warren was the family doctor, and he died at that battle. That was the first major battle in the American Revolution. Um, George Washington was on his way to take command of the Continental Army. Now, this Dr. Warren, uh, earlier, before the battle, you know, he was the family doctor. He had, uh, Johnny, John Quincy, had badly broken a forefinger, and it was feared that it would need to be amputated. However, Dr. Warren saved his finger, and he really needed that for all the writing. This must have been in his right hand. All the writing that he did in his life. So, and then this... Versus Dr. Warren died at Bunker Hill. Uh, John Quincy Adams recalled his childhood years later, and he wrote this, quote, At ten years of age, I read Shakespeare's Tempest, As You Like It, Merry Wives of Winter, Much Ado About Nothing, and King Lear. There was also a small edition of Milton's Paradise Lost, which I believe I attempted ten times to read and never get could get through half the book. I was mortified, even to the shedding of tears, that I could not even conceive what it was that my father and mother admired so much in that book, and yet I was ashamed to ask. I was ashamed to ask them an explanation. I smoked tobacco and read Milton at the same time, from the same motive, to find out what was the recondite charm in them which gave my father so much pleasure. After making myself four or five times sick with smoking, I mastered that accomplishment, but did not master Milton. I was 30 when I first read Paradise Lost with delight and astonishment. Now, in his childhood, he was, he was under a lot of pressure from his parents to achieve, to study, and uh, that, that's how they, they expected great things of him, you know, and he, he, he did achieve a lot, of, although his, his two brothers uh, collapsed under the under the, under the pressure from, from their parents. So at age 10, he went with his father to Europe during the American Revolution. It was a dangerous uh, trip across the Atlantic Ocean because the British could have you know, stopped the ship and would have captured them all. And as his father had this very important role in trying to get France to support the U.S. and the American Revolution. Now, Johnny, John Quincy, was in school. He went to a boarding school in France in Passy, which I believe is near Paris. You know, he was mature for a young age. Uh, you know, he really sort of accepted this, uh, all this responsibility, this, uh, the expectations that were placed on him. He wrote a letter uh, from, from uh, Paris, from France, to his brother Charles, and he said this, quote, We are sent into this world for some end. It is our duty to discover by close study what this end is, and when we once discover it, to pursue it with unconquerable perseverance. So, yeah, this, he, he had determination, even at a young age. So uh, in 1779, uh, 
After a year and a half, father and son, John and John Quincy, returned to the United States. Uh, but only four months later, his father was sent back to, to, to Europe to uh, negotiate an end to the War of, uh, of Independence. And this time they stayed six years. And so in November of 1779, they returned, and Charles, his younger brother, uh, uh, age nine, also came with them for the same reason. And his father was negotiating, trying to negotiate a peace treaty with Great Britain. Um, they had trouble on the trip. They landed in, uh, because of the weather, they landed in Spain, and it was decided to, uh, they couldn't get another boat up closer to, to Paris, France. So they decided to travel overland by, uh, through Spain, and it was a tough, tough trip. And John Quincy, who actually kept a lifelong diary, wonderful resource for historians, he wrote this about traveling through Spain in 1779. I thank Almighty God that I was born in a country where anybody may make a good living if they please. He was, talking, he was referring to the Spanish poverty, severe poverty in Spain, even though they had a tremendous empire, but it certainly wasn't enriching. The common people of Spain were, did not benefit from the empire, only individuals. After a tough trip, uh, John Adams and his two sons arrived in Paris, and uh, they were, uh, Johnny and Charles were enrolled in the school in Passy. Johnny was studying Latin, Greek, French, geometry, arithmetic, writing, and drawing. And then uh, uh, in July, uh, John Adams decided to go travel to, to Holland. He wanted to, he's trying to get Dutch loans. The U.S. needed loans to fight the war. And so they all, the father and the two uh, sons, moved to Amsterdam, Holland. Uh, both boys uh, were enrolled in the Latin school, but they were, they were very unhappy there, and they changed schools, transferred to the school in Leiden. By 1781, the uh, U.S. sent its first ambassador to Russia, Francis Dana, and he did not speak French, which was the language of uh, diplomacy in Europe. Uh, but uh, Johnny had learned French, and you know, he was young, so it's easier for, for kids to learn languages. So it was decided that he would go accompany Francis Dana as his secretary. He was only 14, and he spent two years in Russia. Now, meanwhile, his younger brother Charles was very unhappy in Europe, and he was sent home to Massachusetts. So uh, anyway, this was a real adventure and, you know, he was, uh, you know, left, his father remained in, in Holland, well, Holland and France. So uh, it was Catherine the Great was the Tsarina of Russia at that time, one of the greatest leaders in Russian history. And she was actually German. Uh, but, and it was, it was a tough trip. It took 55 days, 2,500-mile journey. They passed through Utrecht in Germany, Cologne, Frankfurt, Leipzig, Berlin, Danzig, Riga in Latvia, and finally in St. Petersburg, where the, which was the capital at that time, not Moscow. Uh, the Russian, the common people of Russian were called serfs, and they were like slaves. It's very, very troubling. There were no schools, so uh, Johnny had to have self-study. He couldn't, uh, he, he had to just read books on his own. And he had, he definitely had, was homesick in St. Petersburg. Another fine biographer, a tremendous biography of John Quincy Adams was Paul C. Nagel. And he wrote this about uh, John Quincy in St. Petersburg at that time when he was 14. Quote, John Quincy Adams haunted the booksellers, the start of a lifelong hobby, 
buying many volumes for shipment home. He began to study German and became such a master of French that John Adams half-seriously complained that his son wrote better letters in French than in English. Yeah, so he was... He wasn't lollygagging. He was taking advantage of, uh, of you know, there were books to be had in St. Petersburg. And, um, yeah, lifelong, I'm inspired by him. He was an intellectual, though he also had a fighting spirit, John Quincy Adams, but he was definitely loved reading books. He really lifelong lover of learning. Harlow Giles Unger wrote about, uh, about uh, John Quincy's experience in Russia, quote, the crushing poverty, deprivation, and lack of freedom in Russian life and the oppressive slavery he had witnessed left him depressed. And John Quincy wrote, quote, Everyone that is not noble is a slave. So a different, different world in Russia. And so he, he was there for uh, about a year and a half, and then his father called him to come to, come to him in, uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. So... Uh, John, uh, Johnny left St. Petersburg in October of 1782 and had a, took him about six months to, to make it. You know, traveling, travel was pretty slow back then. He traveled through Finland and into Sweden, and he, he wrote this about Sweden, quote, Sweden is the country in Europe which pleases me most. Traveled through Denmark, Hamburg, and finally arrived at The Hague in April of 1783. Six-month trip, although he actually took his time. He really had come of age. He was, he was a young man, a man of the world. He was you know, traveling on his own, and he really enjoying himself, really enjoying these different, uh, diff- different countries and different peoples of Europe. Uh, and so they were spending, he was back with his father again, in, uh, and they, it, in 1783 his father was in England, and in October they visited Bedlam, the hospital for the insane. And that must be where the word uh, bedlam comes from, you know, sort of a craziness. Uh, by 1783, John Quincy was working as a secretary at the Paris Peace Talks to end the war between the United States and Great Britain, the War of Independence for the 13 North American col- English colonies. In 1784, you know, his father was a, they both were driven men, driven to achieve, tended to overwork, and uh, his father got, had, was, had some severe health problems in, in Holland, and, but he recovered. And Paul, his, uh, biographer Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, Soon John's health had improved dramatically, allowing the Adamses to have a wonderful time together, particularly as they read Plutarch aloud over coffee and chocolate at breakfast. During these early months in 1784, Johnny was lost to his delicious revel in books, travel, theater, and the arts. I especially enjoy that. Reference to Plutarch, who's considered like this great biography from ancient Rome. Paul C. Nagel wrote this about this time, quote, Now, by, again, they were, well, sometime later they ended up in Paris, France, the father and son, and Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, Amid the gratifications of these last weeks in Paris, Johnny found time to, re- to resume his diary. He opened the first volume with a quotation from Vol- Voltaire. Indolence is sweet, and its consequence is bitter. A sentiment he would re- repeat in a hundred variations over the years. I think part of the reason he had this depression, 
he felt this compulsion to achieve. He always felt whatever he did wasn't good enough. And so he, he pushed himself. Well, he also had good times. But whenever he was having a good time, which he, you know, you, people, we need recreation, but he kind of felt like he was being lazy. Now, since the uh, since uh, John and uh, John Quincy, the father and son, you know, they they hadn't seen their the, the uh, John hadn't seen his wife. They've been separated from Abigail and then the sister Nabby. So it was decided that uh, Abigail and Nabby Adams would come to them, and that's what happened. They they sailed for Europe, and uh, they uh, John Quincy was at the Hague studying. They had a August reunion in London. You know, John and John Quincy, well, husband and wife, and the uh, the two siblings. So the so they had a nice family reunion there. Uh, Abigail was pretty hard on John Quincy. She was always writing him letters, you know, and uh, encouraging him to to work very very hard. In August, the, the four of them were in Paris, and uh, his father. By then, the, the the war was over. The American Revolution had been won. But John Adams was negotiating peace treaties with European countries. And his com- companion was Thomas Jefferson, who was also there for the same reason. And during this time, uh, uh, John Quincy and Thomas Jefferson became very good friends, very close with each other. Now, he was 18 in 1785, and it was decided that he needed a return to America. You know, he'd been gone for quite a few years. He'd been gone. You know, he left when he was... T- he'd been gone for about eight years, really, close to eight years, and so, uh, well, seven years in Europe. He'd been in Amsterdam, The Hague, St. Petersburg, and Paris. So it was decided he needed to come back to America to go to college. His father had gone to Harvard, and, and they were hoping that he would be admitted there as well. So he came home after all these years in Europe, so much of his childhood in Europe. He arrived in New York City, and you know, he was the son of the famous John Adams, and that gave him standing. He met some famous people. He met Thomas Paine, the author of The Crisis, who, uh, who would, and Common Sense, who would played a major role in the American Revolution through his writing. He also met James Monroe, who later would become president and under whom he would serve as Secretary of State and other famous politicians. By, by August, he was in Boston preparing for entrance at Harvard. Initially, he was not accepted. The, uh, the, the Harvard, the, the powers that be thought, no, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not up to snuff. So he had to study some more, but eventually, after a number of months, he was accepted. And after studying for some time, he studied Virgil, Horace, Homer, Xenophon, Greek grammar, the Greek New Testament, geography, logic, and, and the writing of John Locke. So during this time, as you know, he, he wasn't studying all the time. And Paul C. Nagel wrote this about, about this time in his life. When he was, he was in the Boston area, and Nagel wrote this quote, Young ladies and gentlemen of Haverhill, now that's in Massachusetts, were, off, were often together without the presence of elders, couples huddled during the long sleighing expeditions. Although, as John Quincy Adams recalled with amusement years later, these excursions were necessarily chaste, since the participants had to be heavily clad against the cold. <laughs> By 1786, uh, uh, John Quincy was admitted to Harvard and began his college uh, days. He, he paid no tuition. It was waived uh, because of his father's national service. So that was, that was pretty nice. He got very interested in astronomy, very hard worker, and he graduated in a year and a half. He was admitted as a junior. They decided that you know, he'd really learned a lot, and uh, 
even strangely enough, they didn't accept him earlier, although I think they were hoping for this, uh, uh, you know, junior year admission. So he only had a year and a half at Harvard, kind of too bad because he really, really enjoyed being there, loved studying and loved the whole college atmosphere. And he was, he was given credit for his European studies. By 1787, uh, John Quincy graduated from Harvard. And, of course, the next question, question was, what, do you, what was he going to do with his life? And his father, you know, encouraged him and pressured him to become a lawyer, even though it really wasn't what he wanted to do. But you know, he had to do something, so he began a three-year legal apprenticeship with lawyer Theophilus Parsons in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Uh, in September, he was, uh, he, was 20, he was 20 years old. Now, this was 40 miles northeast of Boston. He was working very hard. He really didn't like it at all. He actually hated his legal studies. He found it extremely boring and uh, never really, the law really was, was not for him. So he had de some depression during this time. You know, he'd had some really very interesting years in Europe, very interesting and, and exciting. And now he was studying law and, and very, very unhappy at it. During that time, there was a big national debate about the U.S. Constitution, which had been signed but not ratified by the states. And John Quincy was of the opinion that he was in favor of the U.S. Constitution. And he did have time for recreation, and he has to continue to have time to read uh, books from the, great books from the ancient Greeks and Romans and so forth, and, uh, and from, from Europe, different countries in Europe. And after after finishing at Harvard in 1787, he quoted Shakespeare's King Henry V, quote, If it be a sin to covet, covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. So he was, he was ambitious. He, you know, he really wanted to be famous. He wanted to be recognized for achievement. Uh, and he was, despite his depression, or when he wasn't depressed, he, he had some good times around Newburyport and Haverhill, another community, and, and he wrote this in 1787, quote, Dissipation is so fashionable here that it is necessary to enter into it a little in order not to appear too singular. Now, back then, the expression is singular, the adjective, that was not a, if you were singular, that means you were kind of odd. You're, you know, singular means one. So that means you, were needed, you weren't really part of the group. So I thought that was a, that was a good quote. Again, he was very unhappy studying to be a lawyer, and he wrote this, quote, God of heavens, if those are the only terms upon which life can be granted to me, oh, take me from this earth before I curse the day of my birth. <laughs> In uh, 1788, he was having trouble focusing on his studies. Yeah, part of it was his depression. And he wrote this, quote, that he, that he had been, quote, somewhat in the dumps. I have in great measure gone into a course of dissipation, Balls, slaying parties, and visiting occupy the whole of my time. I'm not, I think he was exaggerating here. In 1789, his father uh, took office as the first vice president of the United States in April under uh, U.S. President George Washington. The following year, um, Adams, uh, Johnny, or John Quincy, finally finished his legal studies and was admitted to the Massachusetts Bar in 1790. He didn't have a lot of work. You know, it takes time to develop a client base when you're a young lawyer. Uh, but, he's, but he actually started writing. Started writing articles which were printed in newspapers in favor of the Federalist Party. 
And so this really was the beginning of his political career. And he, he was noticed. People took notice. Ah, this young John Quincy Adams. Especially, you know, he was in favor of the Constitution and in favor of the policies of President George Washington. The following year, his, uh, actually he was being supported by his parents because uh, he wasn't making enough money. He had some legal work, but not a lot. Uh, so you know, he spent his time, uh, you know, he had still had, he had spare time in the office when there was no work to do. And he was, he, he was re- reading these great authors that he enjoyed so much, including Livy, Tacitus, Cicero, Shakespeare, Milton, Pope, Swift, Jonathan Swift, uh, Voltaire, Hume, Samuel Johnson, and Edmund Burke, among others. And he continued to his, he continued his uh, political writing. You know, the French Revolution was a big topic. You know, did you favor it? Were you against it? And the, the, uh, the Federalists were against the French Revolution. They didn't, they didn't go for what was going on over there. And, the, uh, and then this new party, the opposition party, the Republicans, later renamed Democrats, they were in favor of the French Revolution. So, so John Quincy was uh, continuing to write. And uh, he, was, uh, this, this was, he was getting into the, you know, the, his legal career was not his future. The two great loves of his life were intellectuality and politics. And in politics, he was able to have enough time to, in, to read you know, these intellectual books, great books. In 1791, on Beacon Hill, John Quincy watched the, an eclipse of the sun. However, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't safe. You know, it's not safe to look directly in an eclipse. And he watched without a piece of smoked glass for direct viewing. I guess the smoke glass would protect your eyes. So he looked directly. He heard his eyes. His vision never quite recovered. And his eyes were a concern for the rest of his life. Reminded me of my childhood. There was, a, uh, there was an eclipse. And I think I, I think I did the same thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I, I remember we were being warned, you know, that you can't. We, I think we had to look at it through some uh, a piece of paper with a pinhole in it. Now, there was an interesting thing going on in Boston, you know, with cultural things. There was uh, people who were against plays, you know, plays where you have live actors. You know, this is before TV and movies. But people would go and watch, you know, actors perform plays for entertainment, telling a story. And uh, there were those who thought, oh, this is immoral, it's terrible. So actually there was an anti-theater law which had been passed, which prohibited all plays. Now, John Quincy loved Shakespeare, and Shakespeare, of course, is very often has been performed as plays, and, and he wrote plays. And so he started writing articles, essays, which were published in the newspapers, which helped, which pressured the politician and played a role in, in ending the prohibition on plays. Uh, so this was, this was a good thing, you know, because this is what the people, there's nothing wrong with having, having, having plays. It's part of entertainment. In 1794, he got his big break when uh, President George Washington appointed him as ambassador to the Netherlands. During this time, he was continuing to struggle as a lawyer. And, uh, and so this was, you know, he, you know, he missed, actually missed going to Europe. So this is his big chance to go back to Europe, which he enjoyed so much. He got the news in June of 1794 and in September sailed back to Europe. His younger brother Thomas came as his secretary. First, they spent some time in London and then traveled to The Hague in the Netherlands. So this was the beginning of his, his career as a diplomat. And for the next seven years, he was in Europe. 
U.S. ambassador to several countries, including the Netherlands, Portugal, and Prussia. So he was pretty happy about this because as a diplomat, he did have time, along with his work, to engage in his the thing that he enjoyed, which was reading great books of history and literature. Now, during this time, the Netherlands was under French occupation, under the Napoleonic Wars. You know, the French gotten crazy. Well, this is a little bit before Napoleon, but during the time when France went to war with all the countries of Europe, exporting its revolution. He did not have much work to read. Not, he did not have much work, so he had plenty of time to read. He, he, he wrote a letter during this time to his sister, Nabby, who was back in Massachusetts, quote, We are indeed once more scattered about the world, and our destiny from childhood has been that of wanderers beyond the common lot of men. So he, during this time, he was enjoying, he read Don Quixote's, uh, uh, or Cervantes' Don Quixote, one of my favorite books, and especially the story of tilting at windmills. And so he, he did not want to continue back and, and work as a lawyer again. So anyway, thank you so much for watching. We're out of time. Hope you find a good history book to read. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 2. John Quincy Adams was the sixth U.S. president, and we stopped last time in 1796. He was the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands under President George Washington. And uh, this was his first good job, and he was you know, pretty happy to be back in Europe where he had spent much of his childhood. And, uh, and, and he, he also had time to, to read books, read uh, great books of history and literature, and he wrote this in 1796, quote, I have not yet lost my attachment to poetical beauty and still recognize with delight the flashes of original genius. Shakespeare, therefore, retains almost unimpaired his empire over my mind. So uh, he, uh, in February of 1796, he found he, he was, uh, he spent some time in London during his time in Europe. And uh, there was an American family in London that he started visiting. They had three uh, uh, daughters who were eligible, and uh, he started spending a lot of time there. And began, actually, he, you know, he was still single. He'd had a relationship in Boston that had, didn't work out, partly in large part due to his mother's influence, who didn't, didn't approve of the young lady. And uh, anyway, you know, he, had, he had a good job, so he was thinking of marriage. And uh, he fell in love with Louisa Johnson in London, this uh, a young lady from an, from an American family. She was the second in the family. And um, so uh, by October, he was appointed U.S. ambassador to Portugal. And in November, his father was elected U.S. president, second president of the United States. Now, the thing is, uh, he, yeah, he, he had mixed feelings about getting married. He, they were engaged, uh, but then they, they, it seems like they couldn't, uh, he, he wouldn't set a wedding date and, uh, and uh, they, uh, Louisa and her family became impatient. And um, so, and he, he, you know, he was going to Portugal, or I believed he was going to Portugal. I wasn't sure, you know, if he wanted, was really ready, ready to get married or if he could support a, uh, you know, a family yet. At any rate, finally, you know, he was, this, this uh, family, the father and mother and Louisa, you know, kept pressuring him. They had kind of a turbulent uh, uh, courtship. But on July 26, 1797, uh, John Quincy and Louisa Johnson got married in London. Uh, there was no, uh, his family did not attend, and it was just her family and some, some friends in London. 
They, uh, they had an interesting marriage, uh, John Quincy and Louisa. They were married for more than 50 years, and uh, they had a stormy relationship. You know, there were, he was a kind of a difficult guy to live with. He was a good man, but he was kind of troubled and, uh, and uh, kind of crazy sometimes. And uh, so anyway, but they, you know, all in all, they, you know, they got through those hard, the hardships that they went through. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of love between them. And um, so, so I would say that they had a good marriage. And she was, she was a good wife, Louisa Johnson. And uh, they had four children, including a son, Charles, who became U.S. ambassador to Great Britain during the Civil War. Louisa, again, you know, her, she had been, I believe, had spent her entire uh, life in, over in England and in Europe and had never been to the United States. Historian William Seal wrote this about Louisa uh, Johnson Adams, quote, Though a social creature, she brooded behind the scenes, often troubled by anxieties. Yeah, John Quincy and Louisa, they both had uh, their problems, you know, mental problems, you could say. I guess we all do. And, uh, and, uh, but anyway, yeah, she, 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 had, she, she, she also had depression. They both had depression on and off. Now, uh, the thing is, the, uh, the plan, plans were changed. Uh, he was, uh, it was decided that he would go to Prussia rather than Portugal in June of 1797 and he was kind of a he was upset because all actually his he had shipped his stuff and they had shipped things to to Portugal and now they're supposed to go to Berlin you know Prussia is now a part of Germany so this was uh, this is what happened now after the wedding shortly not long after the wedding her Louisa's parents uh, sailed to the United States and they uh, John John Quincy had the impression that uh, she, this was a very wealthy family, and he, he anticipated eventually coming back to the U.S. and living the life of an intellectual gentleman farmer, you know, reading books and sort of not, not being pressured to make money. But uh, the thing is, her father, Luisa's father, had severe financial problems that nobody knew about except him. And shortly after uh, he left, he and his wife left and sailed to the U.S., these creditors started coming to the, to the place where, the home where uh, John Quincy and Louisa were staying. And all the, there was all these bills that had not been paid. And this was very, very troubling. And then, you know, John Quincy realized that he was not going to be able to live a life of ease and, um, and uh, be in, just read books, which actually was worked out okay because, you know, he was a very hardworking guy and ambitious to, to achieve. Uh, but this was very hard on Louisa, you know, her father, whom she admired. She was haunted for the rest of her life. By this, uh, by her father's financial collapse. Anyway, so the couple, John Quincy and Louisa, by November they arrived in Berlin, Prussia, and as John Quincy was the U.S. ambassador there, she had a she had a miscarriage uh, shortly, uh, sometime after they arrived, and almost died. So this was this was tough. In fact, she had she had quite a few miscarriages, and they were you know heartbroken naturally because they wanted to have a family. Now, the, uh, the Queen of Prussia, uh, you know, learned about this miscarriage and, you know, that they were sort of in mourning and how sad uh, Louisa felt. And so she uh, gave her some uh, rouge. You know, rouge is this uh, makeup that women put on their cheeks. Now, the thing is, uh, John Quincy was, had very strong opinions of right and wrong. And he, he thought, you know, that um, wearing makeup, especially rouge, was, uh, he considered this a bad woman would wear something like this. It was not acceptable for a good woman. And he had very, yeah, he, this was one of his problems in life. His ideas of right and wrong were very strong. And uh, he was very intolerant of when people uh, uh, broke the rules that he believed in. 
So anyway, uh, this uh, the Queen of Prussia had uh, given uh, Louisa some rouge, which she put on before they were going to go to a party. And uh, um, John Quincy had a fit, and he forbade her from using it. And she put it on anyway. This is a very ugly scene. She put on this rouge, and he scrubbed it off with a wet towel. You know, very, very unfortunate. And it was, it was fashionable at the time in Berlin. So this was, you know, early in their marriage. And uh, so anyway, he was uh, there in Berlin, Prussia, and there wasn't much work to do. He was studying German and became fluent. In February, uh, he got news that he had given Charles, his brother, younger brother Charles, $4,000 to invest for him. And the money was gone because Charles, you know, is actually uh, on the road to death through alcoholism. His brother... So he got news that this money was gone. So this was very troubling because you know, he's a young guy starting married, married life. And, and uh, that was a lot of money for that time. In July of 1798, uh, Louisa had her second miscarriage. The following year, in April of 1799, her third miscarriage. So this was, you know, it was very tough, all these miscarriages, you know, because they were hoping to have a family. And this is, this is really the death of a child. Uh, by July of 1798, John Quincy was able to sign a treaty between the United States and Prussia. That same year, 1799, John Singleton Copley painted this outstanding portrait of John Quincy when he, as a young man. That, uh, it's on the cover of the Harlow Giles Unger biography, one of, his, one of the best uh, uh, portraits of John Quincy Adams. In January of 1800, uh, Louise had her fourth miscarriage. Her first four pregnancies led to ended in miscarriage. So it was very, very tragic, and she was in poor health. They decided, uh, uh, John Quincy decided that they would travel that summer in Silesia. Now today, Silesia is part of Poland, but uh, uh, back it was, it's actually been a very Germanic area. It was part of Germany, and it was part of Prussia at this time. And it was considered a very beautiful country or area, region of, of, of what's now Poland. A lot of German-speaking people living there. And during, this was during the summer. I believe there's, it's a mountainous, very beautiful mountainous area. And he, uh, during, that, during their travels in Silesia, John Quincy wrote 43 letters to his youngest brother, Thomas, about their travels, describing the, the land and the people. Uh, Thomas had, them, had these letters published in serial form in a Philadelphia literary magazine. And uh, an unknown person published them in London as a 387-page book called Letters on Silesia. And later there were French and German translations published. All this with, without uh, John Quincy's knowledge. He, didn't, he was just writing letters, but you could see he was a very good writer. So it was good that the doct, their doctor had saved his forefinger when he was a boy, the doctor who died at Bunker Hill. 1801. Uh, Louisa finally success, successfully gave birth and, uh, to a son whom they named George Washington Adams. Kind of a, uh, well, he was paying respects to George Washington, who had given him his first good job as U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands. So, uh, and, and the, uh, again, this was, in, this was in Berlin, Prussia, and which is now uh, Germany, uh, uh, Paul C. Nagel, his, the biographer, wrote, wrote this about this time, quote, To assure perfect quiet for Mrs. Adams' a recuperation, the Prussian king ordered all traffic prohibited in the street where they lived. So that was nice. One of the advantages of, of knowing the king, uh, that he could do something like that. And uh, so that was, you know, he, 
John Quincy was, you know, knew the king of Prussia because he was the ambassador. In November of 1800, this is a few months earlier, uh, his, John Quincy's brother Charles died of alcoholism. So this is very, very tough. His, the, the middle of the three brothers. And around that time, uh, his father had been defeated as, uh, in the U.S. presidential election against uh, Thomas Jefferson, the 1800 election. So this was kind of sad times for their family. Uh, and uh, so that, that meant in early 1801, by March 1801, uh, Thomas Jefferson would be taking office and his father would be leaving the, the White House. And uh, his father decided to recall him. John Quincy was disappointed. He thought, well, uh, well you know, why do, maybe uh, Jefferson would have, would have kept him on. You know, then actually he knew Jefferson. He was, Jefferson was like, had been like a father to him when they, when they knew each other in, 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 in France. But anyway, that was his decision. So he was recalled and he came home to the United States in June of 1801. And they took a ship from Hamburg to Philadelphia. And uh, then he returned to Boston to continue this uh, legal practice, which was, you know, his thing, the thing he dreaded in life, practicing law, because it just wasn't for him. Arrived in September. Uh, uh, before that, they, were, they had been in, uh, spent some time in New York City, and he had dinner with Aaron Burr, famous Aaron Burr, who was vice president, was killed, who killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And then finally, the home in Boston. By December, he was working, you know, and pretty unhappy again uh, as a lawyer, and uh, Louisa was sickly. Now, of course, they had their baby son, George. At night, uh, John Quincy would read Shakespeare, often out loud, to Louisa, as well as his other, one of his other favorites, John Locke. So again, he was kind of, thought, well, what am I going to do, you know, and not really happy practicing law, and uh, politics was, uh, was very attractive to him. Uh, he was getting involved in community organizations. He helped as a volunteer firefighter at nights and uh, trying to be a good citizen. One of his friends was William Emerson, the father of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And during this time, 1802, uh, Louisa's father died. And she, this was very hard on her because, you know, she was heartbroken. She really admired her father and he was never, he never recovered from his financial catastrophe and because he, he became very depressed. In April of 1802, John Quincy was elected to the Massachusetts Senate, and although he actually never, he didn't see, he didn't really serve because certainly thereafter he was elected to the U.S. Senate. And during this time, John Quincy wrote this quote: "Liberty, religion, and philosophy are and must ever remain the blessings and ornaments of life, however they may sometimes get ill sorted." So you can see he believes in, believed in liberty, religion, and philosophy. Freedom. So uh, this was this, uh, you know, so he started his, uh, well, his political career in earnest, and he served for eight years in the U.S. Senate as a senator from Massachusetts, starting in 1803. In uh, July of that year, July 4th, their second son, John, was born. So Louisa was having some success in bringing children, uh, having having uh, pregnancies lead to, to live babies. So they had their second son. Uh, he was having uh, uh, financial problems because uh, partly he actually, his father, John Adams, was you know, older and was relying on John Quincy f- uh, f- 
to uh, manage his money, to help manage his money. And uh, uh, there was a, an investment that went bad that John Quincy had made on behalf of his father. And so uh, he decided he needed to reimburse him for that. So this led to financial problems. In August of 1803, his mother Abigail was sick and almost died. In October, uh, John Quincy and Louisa moved to Washington City, and he began his uh, work as a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. He was in the Federalist Party, uh, but he did not toe the party line. He was really very independent. You know, he really believed in doing what was right, or what, what he believed was right, and this led to problems um, in, uh, politically, because guys, when you're in a par- political party, that's not appreciated. They Party loyalty is, is something that's very highly valued for political success of the party. Now, one of the things that was one of the issues, Thomas Jefferson was president, the Louisiana Purchase uh, took place, and uh, the question is, had, it had to be approved by Congress, and the Federalists were against it because they thought it would weaken New England. Federalists were really uh, str- uh, strongly rooted in New England. They were against the, the Louisiana uh, Purchase and voted against it. John Quincy voted for it. He was in favor of it, and he helped uh, uh, he helped the Senate approve the Louisiana Purchase, and this led to him being unpopular with the Federalist Party and in New England. Another issue came up. There was a there was a treaty that was up for a consideration that would have given the United Kingdom, Great Britain, a 150 mile strip of land, which is now on the Canadian border in what's now Washington State, Montana, and North Dakota. And John Quincy Adams fought against this. He was against it because he, he thought this should be American territory. And he helped keep that land American. It's called the Adams Strip because of the efforts of John Quincy Adams to keep it a part of the United States. In November of 1805, he was hired to teach at Harvard, his alma mater, and this is something that, that he did while, pursue, while continuing to be U.S. Senator. In May, he visited his brother-in-law, William Smith. His sister, Nabby, had married a guy who was no good, William Smith, and he was in debtor's prison. This is another tragic thing for their family, the marriage, uh, the very tragic marriage of his sister, Nabby, to William Smith, who was a, a ne'er-do-well. That summer of 1805, John Quincy uh, was enjoying, he had time to read, and he was reading some of these Great thinkers from the ancient world, including Demosthenes, Aristotle, Cicero, and Quintilian. John Quincy taught at he taught oratory and rhetoric at Harvard for three years. Yeah, so that this was something that he he enjoyed doing. He wrote in his diary, this very ex, this extensive diary about his Harvard, all the work he did for these Harvard lectures. He felt that he was like Sisyphus from ancient Greek mythology, condemned to roll a large stone up a hill in Hades, only to have it roll down again every every night, over and over and over. That's this uh, legend, this guy. That's his, that's his punishment in, in hell, this character Sisyphus. He rolls a ball up during the day, and, and then it rolls back down every day. He has to roll this ball back up, up this hill. And in uh, John Quincy Adams' case, he said he took two weeks of hard work for one half, for a half-hour class teaching at Harvard. June of 1806, uh, John Quincy was in Boston teaching. Louisa was in, in Washington, and she gave birth to a stillborn child that was that was dead at, at birth. So this is another tragedy for them. So during these years, his uh, he was uh, 
he would travel back and forth part the year. He would Half the year he'd be in Boston teaching at Harvard, the other half in Washington serving as U.S. Senator. In 1806, he was given, as U.S. Senator, he was given $494 to spend in Boston bookstores for books for the Library of Congress. And uh, biographer Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote, Here at last he found public duty and personal pleasure in perfect harmony. So the thing he loved, one of the things he loved, uh, great loves, was going to bookstores and you know seeing what they had and looking for or for interesting books that he could buy. In this case, he could do that and also part of his work as U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. In 1807, in August, Louisa gave birth to Charles, their, their, third, ch- their third son, and, uh, in, uh, and, and John Quincy had this routine. He, from April to October, he taught at Harvard in Boston, or in, in Cambridge, actually, in the Boston area, and then from October to April, he was in Washington City, as U.S. Senator. He considered himself a man without a party because of his, uh, yeah, he, he was really, had been sort of shunned from the uh, Federalist Party. It became very unpopular. He was so unpopular that, uh, um, that, that he resigned from the Senate. And the, uh, the thing that, the, the, the breaking point was the Embargo Act, which uh, Thomas Jefferson had signed because the, you know, the British were uh, stopping American ships because of their, you know, there was war between Great Britain and France, and the British, uh, the U.S. was trading with both countries, and the British thought, oh, this is trading with the enemy, they're stopping American ships, and still the impressment issue, basically kidnapping American sailors. Now, John Quincy supported the Embargo Act, you know, I think partly because he was, even though his father and Jefferson had become political enemies, but uh, either he believed it was right, and uh, although it turned out to not work at all, but uh, so he, actually, he, uh, he had, this was the, the end of his time in the Senate because of this. The Federalist Party completely withdrew his support, and he believed, or he was pressured to resign. And he became a very hated man in Boston, 1808. And he wrote this, quote, It is not magnanimous and certainly not wise to quarrel with human nature for being weak. That a man should be deserted by his friends in the time of trial is so uniform an experience in the history of mankind that I never had the folly to suppose that my case would prove an exception to it. This is the, the advantage of studying history. You can from the, learn from the experiences of others. You know, he, he, he did what he believed was right, and here he was very, very unpopular in Boston, you know, his hometown, really. In 1809, uh, he continued to, to live, live much of the year in, in Washington. And... Uh, in 1809, James Madison became the fourth U.S. president, and uh, John Quincy attended the, in- the inauguration and the inaugural ball. And he wrote this about that experience, quote, The crowd was excessive, the heat oppressive, and the entertainment bad. So again, he was uh, thought, well, what am I going to do now? He's out of the Senate and uh, d- did not want to practice law. Uh, he was uh, President Madison offered him the chance to become U.S. ambassador to Russia. Remember, this is where he had been before. And since uh, he thought, oh, this is, you know, maybe he was nostalgic about his youth, he accepted it. He became U.S. ambassador to Russia. And his parents were very much against it, and uh, Louisa was against it. And uh, Abigail, his mother, wrote this, quote, Both his father and I have looked to him as the prop and support of our advanced and declining years, his judgment, his prudence, his integrity, 
his filial tenderness and affection, his social converse and information, have rendered his society particularly dear to us. So they felt pretty bad. His parents felt really bad. You know, they were getting older, and he was the only, the only son they could rely on. His two brothers, uh, his one brother had died. Charles had already died, and then Thomas uh, eventually, he, he succumbed to alcoholism as well. So this was, but anyway, this is what he decided to do. He served uh, as U.S. ambassador to Russia for five years under President James Madison. He was actually in uh, Russia during the, the Napoleonic invasion of, of Russia, which is depicted in war, the, the great Russian novel by Leo Tolstoy, Roy and, uh, War and Peace. And uh, um, John Quincy, during his time, became good friends with Tsar Alexander I of, of Russia. They sailed for, from Boston on August 8, 1809, and he wound up spending eight years in Europe. Now, the uh, and it was decided that, uh, you know, Louisa came and they had this one-year-old uh, son, Charles. And, but they, now the thing is, this was, this was a key thing, is uh, George, their son George, was eight years old and John was six years old. And uh, John Quincy decided that they would stay in Massachusetts so they could go to school. And they did not come. And this was a very, actually, a, you could say a tragic decision, a fateful decision, because these two boys were really really traumatizing. You know, they lost it. You know, they're very young, eight and six, and they didn't see their parents for about six years. I think it was six years. Yeah. And so, and this was devastating for Louisa to be separated for her two young boys, you know, for, for such a long time. And, uh, but this was, you know, John Quincy's decision, you know, he, he, he thought this is what we're going to do. And, you know, they need to stay behind and go to school. And, and, uh, I thought it was, he thought it was the right thing. I'm sure years later he regretted his decision. John, Louisa wrote this at this time, quote, Oh, it was too hard. Not a soul entered into my feelings, and all laughed to scorn my suffering. Every preparation was made without the slightest consultation with me, and even the disposal of my children was fixed without my knowledge until it was too late to change. Oh, this agony of agonies. Can ambition repay such sacrifices? Never. And from that hour to the end of time, life to, to me will be a succession of miseries, only to cease with my existence, adieu to America. That decision probably, more than anything, was the, led to the biggest problems they had in their marriage because of these, these young, these boys uh, became very troubled uh, men, and I'm sure it was connected to this. And, uh, you know, and it, it was John Quincy's decision. I'm sure he regretted it. But, you know, the thing is, you have to make a living, and he did not want to be a lawyer, and uh, this was, uh, this is what he wanted to do. And he, he also believed he was, you know, he was being, uh, his country needed him to do this. Anyway, it was his decision, and this also involved him saying farewell to his Harvard students, and he gave a speech, his final class, he said this, had this to say to his students, quote, I would entreat you to cherish and to cultivate in every stage of your lives that taste for literature and science, which is first sought here. I would urge it upon you as the most effectual means of extending your respectability and usefulness in the world. I would press it with still more earnestness upon you as the inexhaustible source of enjoyment and of consolation. In a life of action, however prosperous may be its career, there will be seasons of adversity and days of trial. The trials of prosperity themselves though arrayed in garments of joy, are not less perilous or severe than those of distress. 
At no hour of your life will the love of letters ever oppress you as a burden or fail you as a resource. He's talking about how, you know, books, uh, books are, you know, they, like they say, a good book is a good friend. He continued, quote, I have heard of two lovers who, upon being separated from each other for a length of time and by a distance like that to which I am bound, mutually agreed at a given hour of every day to turn their eyes toward one of the great luminaries of heaven. And each of them, in looking to the sky, felt a sensation of pleasure at the thought that the eyes of the other at the same moment were directed towards the same object. Let us remember the pleasant hours in which we have trod together this path of wisdom and honor. Well, that brought down the house. Uh, there was the kids, all the students all cheered this and very touching farewell. And I thought it was a nice idea. He mentioned, you know, looking at the moon, if, if you're separated from someone, they'll be able to see it as well. So in August of 1803, uh, John Quincy, Louisa, and their, their one-year-old son, Charles, sailed from Boston to St. Petersburg, Russia. It was an 80-day voyage. And... Uh, the ship docked, and they barely made it because the, you know, the, 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 the ice was coming. And then the, in fact, at one point, the, they were over, I think, in the Baltic Sea, and the captain wanted to turn around. He said, we can't make it. And John Quincy said, no. And they did make it, although that the ship was iced in for the winter and had to wait. Um, so they, uh, they made it, and uh, they docked opposite the statue of Peter the Great, you know, the guy who the Russian Tsar who had created St. Petersburg. And later was called Leningrad during the communist era. Now it's St. Petersburg again. Uh, that statue of Peter the Great had a 25-foot-high pedestal and was had a 20-foot-high statue. It was actually built by Catherine the Great. And uh, and during the during the Second World War, the uh, the Germans didn't uh, destroy it. I think partly because it had been built under the leadership of a German, Catherine the Great, who was uh, herself German. So it appears we're out of time. Thank you so much for watching. God bless you. I hope you find a, a good history book to read. Next time we'll continue with the amazing life of John Quincy Adams. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 3. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States. We stopped last time in 1809, and he was in Russia as the U.S. ambassador with his wife, Louisa, and their, their very young son, Charles, and then they left behind the, the, the older uh, two, two, two sons, uh, George and John, back in Massachusetts. And they, well, they had some pretty hard times over there in, in Russia. And uh, it was, uh, you know, very, very cold. Much cold. Massachusetts has pretty tough winters, but it was much, much tougher, colder, and, and darker in St. Petersburg, which was the capital at that time. Very poor country. There was a lot of loneliness and sickness. They all got sick at the very beginning from uh, dirty drinking water. The, uh, they got dysentery, which was uh, based on uh, problems with sanitation. You know, a lot of guys in war get dysentery from, for the same reason. So they were all sick. Louisa was pretty miserable, uh, extremely miserable. She missed her two sons. Uh, and then John, John Quincy, in his work as U.S. Ambassador, uh, would, uh, was required to attend all these uh, diplomatic dinners, which often went to four till four in the morning, and uh, it was a part of the aristocratic uh, extravagance and dissipation in the old Russian Empire, which in part led to uh, you know the communist revolution, and uh, 
So these, uh, and then there was a lot of drinking involved, which was also problematic. Uh, by uh, by custom, he, they were required to have fourteen servants, you know, and to work for them. And these servants would steal. I guess this this was part of the culture, since the country was so poor that uh, stealing among the poor uh, was that was kind of like supplementing their income, which was so meager. During his time in in Russia. Uh, John Quincy Adams became very good friends with Russian Tsar Alexander I. They actually, they both enjoyed walking. Alexander, the Tsar would be out walking with minimal security, and uh, they would encounter each other. They both liked to walk. John Quincy was a lifelong uh, uh, walker and swimmer. He really couldn't swim in Russia. And And John Quincy was able to get the Tsar's help because American ships had been detained by Denmark, and I think under the French influence, and then the Russians also had influence, and he was able to get these uh, ships released. He was working on establishing free trade between the United States and Russia. As I said, the the winters were very, very tough. As I said, the winters were very, very tough, um, and uh, in the the depth of of winter, uh, John Quincy could only see to write from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., you know, very short... uh, very few hours of, of, of sunlight in the winter. Of course, the opposite, in the, in the summer, uh, they would, he would be able to read and write at midnight. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, he had this to say about uh, St. Petersburg. You know, John Quincy was out walking a lot, and he said this, quote, The immense number of carriages constantly driving and the violence with which they drive keeps the walkers in perpetual hazard of being run over. So challenging walking conditions because of the narrow streets and apparently a lot of traffic with these carriages going here and there. In July of 1810, Louisa had a miscarriage, well, another miscarriage, and, uh, you know, and this added to her depression. In December, she wrote this, quote, We end this year in bad health and in worse spirits than ever. God help us. These honors are dearly bought. See, she was talking about the honors would be the, you know, the honor that he had of being, the US, being a U.S. ambassador. And he was, again, trying to promote trade with Russia. In 1811, uh, John Quincy was nominated. He received word that he could, if he wanted to, he could be on the Supreme Court. He had that, he had that option. And uh, his parents were, his mother, mom and dad knew about this, and they were, you know, really, they assumed he would accept. They thought it was perfect, you know, that he could spend the, the rest of his life on the Supreme Court. It would be job security for life, because those guys work until, until they die. And, um, and then he could be close to home, he could be back in the United States. So he, he turned it down. You know, he, 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 he wasn't interested, because again, if you're on the Supreme Court, it's like a legal thing, and he thought it would be, he thought it would be a very boring job, you know, and uh, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't interest him. And again, he was, uh, I guess he saw himself getting back into politics when he came back to the U.S., so he stayed, they stayed on in Russia for, for, more, for several more years. So this is, I think his mom and dad were very disappointed. In April and, April and May, two, two of their two good friends died, uh, Francis Dana, with whom, he, you know, he had gone to Russia uh, when Dana was the first U.S. ambassador, when, when John Quincy had gone at, as his secretary when he was 14, William M. Emerson, also another friend, died, and uh, they got learned. And then uh, Nabby, his sister Nabby, had breast cancer. 
Louisa's sister, also during this time, Nancy, who was 37, died in childbirth. So this was you know, several sad things going on. And in, in August, uh, Louisa gave birth to a, a girl that, 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 that lived, whom they named Lu Louisa as well. So they had, now they had four children, the, the three uh, sons and the daughter. He was, uh, John, there was no schools there for their son Charles, so, and he was this little boy, you know, he was one when they came, and, and uh, you know, so he was still very young, and John Quincy was his teacher, and, you know, little kids are very restless, it's kind of hard for them to, to buckle down and study when he was here, probably two, three years old, so uh, John Quincy was trying to teach him, and he found that his son was very, very easily distracted, and uh, he it reminded him of, him, of himself, and uh, he, he wrote this quote, I find to this day the same thing in myself, and it is the greatest, perhaps the only cause, which has found the voyage of my life in the shallows. True genius is nothing but the power of, of applying the mind to its object. Yeah, he's talking about concentration, how important it is to focus on one thing. My father used to always say that to me, Pete, you need to focus. And uh, John Quincy, uh, in his defense, was interested in so many different things, so that's partly why he kept uh, changing the focus of his attention from one thing to another. The following year, in September, their baby, Louisa, died. She died of dysentery, and this was a consequence of living in uh, Russia because, uh, you know, she had, they, had all, they had all gotten dysentery from the uh, dirty drinking water, uh, but they were adults, so they could survive it. Now, she was just a baby. You know, little kids can't handle the, uh, a disease that an adult uh, could, could survive. So this was devastating, the death of their one-year-old uh, little girl, uh, Louisa. And uh, uh, her mother, was, uh, who had already been depressed about, especially about uh, not seeing, uh, being separated from the two sons, she wrote this, quote, I am a useless being in this world, and this last dreadful stroke has too fully convinced me what a burden I am become. Surely it is no crime to pray for death. And she had a severe depression for six months after this. You have to give Louisa Adams a lot of credit. You know, she, uh, everything that she went through, she got, you know, she, she overcame, eventually she overcame it. She had a lot of a misery, a lot of depression, but, you know, she ended up uh, living uh, a good life, a good long life. In June, the War of 1812 started. James uh, Madison was the U.S. president. And um, in July, and so, you know, John Quincy was in Russia when that happened. And in July, France invaded Russia. This was uh, under Napoleon's leadership. And these are the events that were depicted in War and Peace, the novel by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, on the day that uh, their daughter Louisa died, Moscow burned. You know, the Russians uh, set, had fires that they set uh, in Moscow. And actually, the, the, the French army entered into Moscow. And then these fires were lit, which made it hard, harder for the French to, you know, to, to live there and stay there. And it was a very dramatic time. And then, of course, the French army... Uh, it was, the winter was coming, and they decided to, to retreat, and uh, they were destroyed by the Russian winter. And that's also depicted in War and Peace. So uh, now the thing, well, the, uh, the Adams weren't really affected so much because uh, the, the French never came to St. Petersburg. They came to Moscow. Their baby, Louisa, was buried in the graveyard in the Anglican Church in St. Petersburg. So by, by that year, 1813, they, he had been, they had been in... Uh, Russia for five years, 
And in February, they got news that uh, his sister, Nabby, had died. And then there was talk about him coming back to the U.S. Uh, because uh, he'd been there long enough and, uh, and he was ready to come home. Uh, Louisa, who was still uh, depressed, wrote this quote, My heart is torn at the idea of quitting forever the spot where my darling lays and to which my soul is linked. Yeah, she felt was feeling bad about leaving the you know the graveyard or the grave of their daughter, uh, baby daughter Louisa. And you have to wonder what happened to her her grave. I, I'm not kind of curious about that because uh, it was it, it was in the Anglican uh, graveyard, and uh, of course a hundred years later they had the Russian Revolution, which tried to eliminate religion. And so that's as, the more you study history, the more questions that are answered. What ha- ever happened to the grave of John Quincy Adams? daughter Louisa in St. Petersburg. By April of 1814, uh, it was decided uh, John Quincy was sent to Ghent, Belgium to, uh, to be a part of the negotiations to end the War of 1812. And he left uh, uh, Louisa and their, their, son, uh, uh, their son Charles back in St. Petersburg. So he, this was a long trip. He traveled to uh, through Holland, and he arrived in, in Ghent, Belgium. By this time, France had been defeated, and Russia and Tsar Alexander were very popular in Western Europe because, uh, you know, basically all of Europe was enemies with France because of the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution. And, you know, they'd been defeated in, in France, so this was a great victory for Great Britain and, and, and so forth. So uh, now one of the things, uh, you know, so he was in, Bel- in Ghent, Belgium, John Quincy traveled, and he was negotiating with the British. One of the things they were trying to get was to get the British to stop the imp- impressment, stop kidnapping American sailors. And, but the British were very stubborn. They would not give, on that, give in on that point. His, he, he worked with Henry Clay, who was also there as a part of the American team. And finally, uh, a treaty was signed in December of 1814, to end the War of 1812, and, and impre- British, British impressment was not ended. They were very different guys, John Quincy and Henry Clay, and uh, John Quincy Adams, and um, during their negotiations with the British, at one point, uh, 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 Clay criticized the British, one of the British diplomats as, quote, a man of irritation, and then John Quincy Adams responded, Irritability is the word, Mr. Clay, irritability. So he was correcting his <laughs> use of words. He's the wrong use of that, of that word or the wrong form. Uh, so by January of 1815, uh, John Quincy sent word that to Louisa that she and Charles should come and meet him in Paris. And uh, so he, you know, he was in Belgium and he... So he, they, they both made their way to Paris, and he didn't have that far to go. On the way, he stopped in Brussels to enjoy the art of Van Dyck uh, and uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And then he arrived, he arrived in Paris before her, and he had this to say, quote, The tendency to dissipation seems to be irresistible. Uh, dissipation meaning all drinking, eating, drinking, and so forth, and staying up late. Now, at this time, Napoleon, uh, you know, had been defeated. He was a... He, had been, he was a prisoner on the island of Elba in the uh, Mediterranean, off the coast of Italy. Meanwhile, John Quincy and, and well, Louisa was, and Charles were on their way, making a very long trip. And meanwhile, John Quincy was enjoying, uh, he went to enjoy Mozart's Figaro at the Odeon. 
So I think that was a classical music performance. Now, Louisa's route to Paris, she passed through Riga in what's now Latvia, Königsberg, Berlin, Leipzig, Frankfurt, and Strasbourg. Very tough, tough trip. And during that time, actually, Napoleon regained power. You know, he had this charisma and so forth, and and he was he he, he got off Elba and started with a small group of guys, and he was supposed to be arrested, and all these guys uh, defected back to him. The French army, they were very loyal to him, and he got he he regained power. And so the French were very, you know, they were actually pretty mad about at the Russians for all of the French soldiers who had died in uh, Fran- in in Russia, you know, during that retreat in the Russian winter. So when Louisa crossed the frontier from uh, from Russia into into France, she she almost got killed by French troops who thought she was a Russian, and they were so mad about from the war. But uh, and so that was a very dangerous time. But she finally was she convinced them that you know, she wasn't Russian, and she made her way to uh, to uh, to Paris. And actually, by the time she got to Paris, Napoleon himself was in Paris as well. So there was a happy reunion in Paris between John Quincy, Louisa, and Charles. They'd been separated for almost a year. Um, to back up a little bit, when, when before John Quincy came to Paris, uh, he, this time he spent in Brussels, Belgium, he visited uh, art collections and a library where he spent hours devouring paintings by these famous uh, painters, Dutch painters, F- Dutch and Flemish tremendous painters such as Holbein, Rembrandt, Rubens, and Van Dyck. So uh, they were they were in Paris. John Quincy and Louisa were in Paris. So they went they went to the theater, the Theater Francais. They went and, and they were there, a play was being performed, Tragedy of Hector, because it had been requested by Napoleon. And when they were they were there at, at this uh, performance, and Napoleon arrived at as well. And the crowd was delirious, you know, there was pandemonium, you know, even though so many people had died because of Napoleon, but he, 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 he remained extremely popular. And John Quincy wrote this quote, Never at any public theater did I witness such marks of public veneration and such bursts of enthusiasm for any crowned head as that evening for Napoleon. By April, uh, John Quincy had been appointed U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. So in May, they traveled, the family traveled to London. Now, they'd been gone for six years by this time. And uh, so it was decided that uh, the two sons, George, who was now 14, and John, who was 12, should come to them. Because then they could, you know, they could study. You know, they'd been, this is, separation was, was way too long. And they could study in England. So they had this happy reunion in England. And uh, uh, John Quincy was trying to... One day he was trying to teach his sons how to fire a gun, but he overloaded it, and uh, when he fired it, it exploded, and he was badly burned in his hand and in his in his eyes. Some of this uh, debris went into his eyes, so he he had severe health troubles because of this gun accident. He couldn't write, and he had eye trouble. He had uh, his eyes were bloodshot and inflamed, and there was discharges coming from his eyes because of this. Uh, you know, some of this. Uh, a matter had gone into his eyes from the gun explosion. He could not read the thing he loved more than anything. And he, he described his, his eyes as he said this, quote, thick, purulent matter oozed out slowly. 
He was confined for weeks in a dark room because his eyes couldn't handle the light. And he, he had this to say about this experience, quote, It was now that I knew how to estimate the blessing of eyesight and the wretchedness of being bereft of it. Now, remember over the years, Louisa had had considerable health trouble and depression and these miscarriages, and John Quincy was actually very good in help, you know, taking care of her and comforting her. Now, this was her t- t- chance to you know, take care of him and to read out loud to him uh, because he couldn't read and also dic- take dictation so that so, you know, he could write letters and she could write them down. Part of the treatment that he had for his eye problems uh, by a doctor was included leeches. The leeches are the, like, the, like, this, uh, like an animal or like a, you know, they're, uh, what do you call them, an insect, you know, these slimy, slimy things. So they were, the doctor was using leeches, these slimy things. They're, you know, they're kind of like worms or, uh, and they'll, they'll you if, if you're out in the water and you get one on your leg, they'll suck your blood. And he wrote this about the experiences of having leeches applied to his eyes to help, I guess, to suck out this matter that was in his eyes. And he wrote, quote, I was nearly delirious. It seemed to me as if four hooks were tearing this, that side of my face into four quarters. Very tough. Finally, by January of 1816, his health had recovered so that he could work, go, go to his office. That same year, he wrote this, quote, May our country be always successful, but whether successful or, or otherwise, always right. This is what he believed in very, very strongly, is, is the, doing the right thing. And, you know, the thing that troubled him so much during this time and for many years, for the rest of his life, was slavery, because slavery was wrong. And he, was, he, he felt bad about that. So he was U.S. ambassador for a couple of years until 1817, under President Madison. And by the, in that year, uh, there was a new incoming president, James Monroe, and uh, he had gotten word, there was talk that he would be Secretary of State. Now, meanwhile, he had been, uh, he had been tutoring his, actually he tutored George for a while, tried to tutor him, and George and John were not hard workers. They were not good students. And he was very, very dis- their father was very disappointed. And he wrote this quote, I am aware that no labor will ever turn a pebble into a diamond if the pursuit of knowledge is not a passion which will seek its own gratification. Well, they had some, uh, you know, early on they had this adjustment to make, and then these poor boys hadn't been with their parents for six years. And then, um, and, you know, he was, John Quincy was a hard, you know, hard-driving guy. And then they actually had some good times for a while in England where, you know, he decided just to accept them for who they were, that they were not... You know, weren't going to be brilliant thinkers, or they weren't, they weren't him or his father. And they had some good times together, which was nice, because things changed when they got back to the U.S. He was, he was writing poetry, and this was a lifelong thing, he, John Quincy, loved, and his love of Shakespeare continued. In April of 17, 1817, he was appointed U.S. Secretary of State under James Monroe, and so they were coming back to the U.S. after eight years in Europe, and he never returned. Now, this position, Secretary of State, means you're in charge of uh, international affairs for for the U.S. And three presidents had used that as a springboard to the presidency. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had been Secretary of State, and then he became president. Same thing with James Madison and James Monroe. So this was really the top position in government. 
And his years, you know, his many years overseas had helped him to really have a sense of being American. You know, not, not so much as, as a guy from Massachusetts. His loyalty was to the whole country. And uh, because this, I think this happens, you know, when you go overseas. And he was, he, was, he was proud of being from Massachusetts. But he wrote this, quote, But the longer I live, the stronger I find my national feelings grow upon me, and the less of my affections are compassed by partial localities. My system of politics more and more inclines to strengthen the union and its government. Yeah, so remember earlier, he'd, well, also done the same thing. You know, he, he had done things that were unpopular politically in New England uh, because he believed they were right. And that, that's, you know, he was similar to his father. They both believed in doing the right thing. So in 1817, they, had, they spent some time in Quincy, the family home in Massachusetts. Uh, biographer Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, it was a special moment of triumph for Louisa, where once she had been coldly treated by a scornful Abigail Adams. Now the matriarch embraced her with affection and admiration, particularly for the courage she had shown in traveling with little Charles from St. Petersburg to Paris. Yeah, that was nice. You know, earlier, uh, Abigail didn't approve of, of Louisa. She thought, oh, who's this uh, English-born woman? And she thought she was going to be real... Uh, high society or difficult or a snob or, or whatever. And, uh, but this trip, yeah, this incredible trip that, they had, that she had made alone with their little boy and where they almost got killed by the French army entering France. John Quincy Adams served as, as Secretary of State for the next eight years, from 1817 to 1825. You know, a lot of things had, you know, our country was changing. This is how the world, world's always changing, especially nowadays and back then as well. And uh, when he arrived in New York City, he was very popular, and he saw the new, uh, the, the, the big innovation was the steamboat, a boat which could, say, which could travel against the wind, which did not require uh, wind power, and you could travel without any wind or against the wind. So this was wonderful. There was a lot of pressure on him, people looking for jobs, and as Secretary of State, he, could, he had that uh, responsibility of hiring people. And a very happy reunion with his parents in, in Boston. And in September, he started working as Secretary of State in Washington City. And he wrote this, quote, I cannot ask of heaven's success, even for my country, in a cause where she should be in the wrong. Same, same idea, believed in doing what was right. And uh, he started overworking, which was a tendency, and he started, you know, they'd had good times in, in England. He'd had good times with his sons, you know, where he accepted them and they enjoyed being together. Now he started being real hard on his sons again, which was, which was ultimately very tragic. And he arrived, he, after arriving in Washington City, he met with President Monroe. You know, they talked about, you know, about the job and what he'd be doing. And he came home at midnight exhilarated. You think uh, you go to bed at a time like that and get some rest. But, but no, at midnight he wrote a poem honoring the moment in, in his career. And he wrote this, quote, O God, my only trust was thou, through all life's scenes before. Lo, at thy throne again I bow, new mercies to implore. Uh, you gotta love John Quincy Adams writing a poem at midnight celebrating uh, becoming Secretary of State. In the spring of 1818, there, were, there had been ongoing problems with Florida, which was a uh, Spanish colony and very weakly governed. The Seminole Indians uh, and uh, were the main Indians in Florida, and a lot of uh, actually a lot of African American slaves had escaped 
uh, in the Deep South and gone to Florida, where they were joined the Seminole Indians. And Seminole Indians and these American in, African Americans had been going on raids into Georgia. You know, they they cross the border and steal horses and things, and uh, and then go back into Florida. And they thought, well, we're safe because they can't catch us in Florida. It's an international border. So finally, Americans were getting fed up. The U.S. Army was sent into into Florida under the leadership of Andrew Jackson. Now, this became controversial because his mandate was just to try to ca capture the individuals involved in, this ra in these raids. But he uh, did a lot more than that, Jackson and the Army. And they actually uh, arrested a couple British guys who they believe were involved in, this, in these raids who were trading with the Seminole Indians. And Jackson had them executed as traitors. And, uh, and then he had, there was considerable fighting. And eventually, we had, there was a U.S. occupation of Florida. And his actions were very controversial, uh, and a lot of folks were thought that uh, were criti critical of Andrew Jackson. However, John Quincy Adams was very, very supportive. And this actually, the U.S. occupation of, of Florida under Jackson's leadership led to Florida becoming a U part of the U.S. And Jacksonville, the city of Jacksonville, was named after Andrew Jackson in, in gratitude for his role. Uh, the Spanish were very upset. But again, you know, they were not uh, governing this, uh, this territory properly. The British were upset. But uh, uh, anyways, eventually this led to the purchase of Florida. That same year, John Quincy Adams wrote a report on weights and measures, and he put a lot of time in this. You know, there's this uh, problem of, you know, with trade and when people when buying and selling, what's the measures, you know, when people buy things, you know, it's based on weight or length and so forth. And... Uh, and depending on the region, people have different ideas about these things. So it was, you know, we really needed a, a uniform measure, measurements, so that to have less conflict and, you know, more, it would be better for business, better for our country. So he did a lot of research, and, that, and he, got, he really got carried away with it. And his final, uh, his, his final report recommended what became the metric system, which is used in Europe. He didn't originate the metric system, but he, he learned about it, and he recommended, recommended it for American use. Well, it actually really hasn't been adopted here, although world, worldwide it has. In 1818, John Quincy Adams wrote this, quote, My friends earnestly urged me to mingle more in society and to make myself more extensively known. I am scarcely ever satisfied with myself after going into company and always have the impression that my time at home is more usefully spent. See, the thing, he was a, he was a politician. And, you know, they, they were already seeing him. His friends saw him as becoming the next president. And they said, you got to go out more and, you know, talk with people and to get support. And, you know, the thing is, like we've talked about, he loved reading books. He was an intellectual. And, you know, and socializing can be very boring, just making small talk with people. So I kind of, kind of a, I kind of, he's a man after my own heart. Uh, he was having uh, personal difficulties, and uh, as well at, during this time, uh, we uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for watching. We will continue next time with the fascinating life of John Quincy Adams. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Hope you find a good history book to read. God bless you, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 4. Uh, we stopped last time in 1818, and John Quincy Adams was the U.S. Secretary of State under President James Monroe. Now, he, he, had, uh, he was working very, very hard. He was actually being too hard on his sons again, and he had uh, quite a few uh, 
aside from his work, he has uh, a lot of things going on in his personal life, a lot of challenges. And one of his uh, uh, wonderful, one of his best biographers, I think, Paul C. Nagel, wrote this about this time in his life, quote, Whether presiding at the State Department or working in, in his study at home, he rarely could banish from his mind a son's escapade, a brother's failure, a parent's infirmity, or some other personal worry. Yeah, see, his uh, sons uh, weren't doing so well in his opinion, and uh, he was disappointed in them. They were uh, all three actually went to Harvard, and uh, his one brother had already died. Uh, brother Charles had died, and uh, and his parents were you know getting older. His father was the former president, so he had uh, yeah, a lot of oh, a lot of things on his mind. In 1819, <clears throat> under the leadership uh, or the involvement of John Quincy Adams, the United States purchased Florida from Spain for $5 million. And, uh, and this was uh, uh, related to the U.S. military occupation under Andrew Jackson, which had been controversial because of the execution of two British citizens. And Americans thought, my gosh, we're going to end up going to war with Spain and Great Britain. The thing is, the Spanish were... Uh, they were having all kinds of problems with their empire. Uh, wars of independence were being fought against them, and so they, uh, you know, they didn't. Uh, and you know, money talks. So five million dollars is a lot of money. So Florida became a part of the U.S. And uh, now during these years, uh, uh, he, well, John Quincy continued his uh, early morning swims across the Potomac River, and he would, he would either walk or swim. In in summer, he would walk. And, and, and or in summer he would swim, in winter he would walk. There was one funny time this Margaret Bayard Smith, who was kind of a was a writer, and she was trying to get an interview with him. He actually would swim naked, take off his clothes, and she was she she couldn't uh, she couldn't you know couldn't pin him down. And and so finally she learned that he would go very early in the morning, like five in the morning, and you'd go in the dark or four in the morning, very early to swim. And so she went one day, and uh, he was in the water, and, you know, he was coming out, and uh, his, there, his clothes were there, and, he, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to have an interview with you, uh, Mr. Secretary. This may have been when he was president, and uh, he was kind of mad, but so he, he gave that interview because you know, he, he had no choice. You know, she was right there. He, didn't, he was ashamed to get out of the water in front of her, so he gave that interview while uh, being in the Potomac River. Uh, so, uh, you know, Washington was very hot in the summer. Often he would go home to Quincy in the summer. Uh, Fred Kaplan, another biographer of uh, John Quincy Adams, wrote this quote about, about John Quincy and his sons. Quote, If his sons could not be men of achievement, let them, he prayed, be honorable human beings. His brother Thomas uh, had actually been doing relatively well, but now he was his, his drinking was becoming a real problem because actually Thomas was taking care of of, his, of the parents. Uh, George, his son, John Quincy's son, George, was at Harvard, and uh, you know, John Quincy was forever giving advice uh, to, to his sons. In one of his letters, he wrote this to George at Harvard, quote, In all cases throughout life, when a difficult choice was to be made, to put the question to myself, which was right and which was wrong, and if I could answer immediately that question, to inquire no further, to take the right side, and then to be moved from it by nothing upon earth. Good advice. Uh, thing is, John Quincy had a pretty strong uh, spirit, and uh, George did not. And so it was, 
You might know what's the right thing to do, but if you don't have the strength, you might not be able to do it. In 1819, uh, John Quincy uh, was able to sign a treaty with Spain called the Adams-Onus Treaty. And in this, the Spanish surrendered their claims to the Northwest Territory, the uh, Oregon Territory. They still had, well, they were going to lose soon, but they still had uh, California, the Spanish, uh, uh, Texas, and the Ameri- what became the American Southwest. Uh, so with this treaty, uh, there's a map called the Transcontinental Treaty Boundary Map, the U.S. had uh, land from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific, although the Oregon Territory was actually under joint American-British, um, considered, uh, they, they still hadn't worked that out. It was considered a joint territory of Great Britain and the U.S., but the U.S. had access to the Atlantic Ocean, or to the Pacific Ocean. So that was a big deal. Um, uh, Paul C. Nagel wrote this about John Quincy Adams in 1819, quote, At least John Quincy Adams no longer had to dread the once cruel ordeal of travel by stage or packet ship. Now, thanks to steam power, the trips between Washington and Boston were a comparative pleasure. John Quincy called the steamboat, quote, one of the greatest and most beneficial inventions of modern ages. Steamships were pretty fast, but also he usually met on board, to quote John Quincy Adams, quote, a great variety of company with whom you can associate, or from whom you can keep aloof at your pleasure. Yeah, the stagecoaches were pretty tough. You know, that was a tough trip on land, you know, very bumpy. You know, sometimes the horses that get spooked could be dangerous. And then by ship, you know, if there's no wind, you're not going anywhere. So st- steamships were really the beginning of the transportation revolution. And it wasn't too long before railroads were, would come into existence and become extremely helpful for transportation on land. In October of 1818, his mother died, Abigail, and he did not come. You know, she was sick. He did not come to see her at the end of her life, and he did not attend the funeral. He stayed in Washington. Uh, Biographer Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, His absence was the ultimate testimony of a lifelong resentment of his mother's domineering ways. Uh, In defense of Abigail Adams, she had had a brother who uh, became an alcoholic and... uh, Another alcoholic and who had uh, his family really suffered. So she felt that uh, maybe he had been spoiled growing up. So she was hard on her children. Um, and actually, her she had uh, two sons die of alcoholism. But yeah, she was hard on, on John Quincy forever, pressuring him uh, and um, you know, kind of in, interfering with his life. So um, she was a good person, but uh, they, 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 were, they, were, they were both strong-willed people. Uh, John Quincy had a, a lot of work to do. He's again working very, very hard as Secretary of State, and he decided that he had uh, needed to cut down in his sleep because he needed more time, you know, to work. And uh, biographer Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote: "Little sleep, along with a heavy dinner and much wine, inevitably brought evenings of drowsiness instead of achievement at his desk." And so John Quincy's solution, you know, to this uh, problem was extreme temperance not only of eating, but of drinking. And Paul C. Nagel responded, quote, It was also a remedy he seemed incapable of applying. And we've talked before about how he had two brothers die of alcoholism, two sons as well. And uh, the thing is that it seemed like the more you read about that era and that time, it seems like an alcoholic era that, uh, you know, John Quincy himself pretty much drank a fair amount every day. And it was just, that's just the way it was. And I think it was, 
apparently connected to the problems with drinking water. You know, that very often drinking water was, wasn't safe, and people, you know, drinking wine, I guess wine was, was safer to drink, except it was alcoholic. In 1820, John Quincy supported the uh, Missouri Compromise in which Missouri entered the United States as a slave state and Maine entered as a uh, free state. And uh, then there was this uh, latitude line, which, above which, I think 36 degrees north, uh, slavery would not be permitted in the United States. And there was this growing conflict between north and south because of slavery. And uh, the abolition movement was growing in the north, and the southerners were more and more committed to slavery because of, uh, of, of the money they were making from cotton, big money, and also their fear of uh, what would happen if slaves were free. Would they seek revenge? Anyway, uh, he felt uh, he was... Uh, anyway, Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, He justified his acquiescence to this agreement through a belief that it might preserve the Union until the North gained the courage and strength to destroy the slave system. Yeah, he was more and more against slavery, and this is a very good quote here because... Uh, this is exactly what happened. The North was industrializing. It was the beginning, early years of the Industrial Revolution, which changed the world. In other words, factories, steel, railroads, uh, and, and so forth. And that's what made the, uh, the, the North uh, stronger militarily to actually to, to win the war. Uh, it was actually, and, and then, and, there, and, and thereby end slavery in the South. So that's exactly what happened. The, it took a lot of courage to to defeat the South in the Civil War, and strength, for, uh, which was growing because of the Industrial Revolution. And the South didn't industrialize, so it didn't have, it had that weakness when the Civil War eventually came. Uh, so again, he was continuing in 1821, his uh, compulsive habit to swim in the Potomac River it was a stress reliever. He'd get up very early in the morning, often in the dark. His father was very feeble during this time, the last years of his life, and Louisa they were very, Louisa and John Quincy were very worried about their son, George. And she wrote this quote, George magnifies his joys and sorrows until the real world in which he moves vanishes from his sight. He was likely to suffer through life from his impetuosity and the absurdity of his notions. And so he was this troubled son, their, their oldest son. In 1822, John Quincy wrote this quote, Cares for the welfare and future prospects of my children. Mortification at the discovery how much they have wasted their time at Cambridge agitated my mind so much that through the night I could not close my eyes. I had hoped that at least one of my sons would have been ambitious to excel. I find them all three coming to manhood with indolent minds. It is a bitter disappointment. Yeah, he was getting feedback that their grades, they were getting low grades and... Uh, uh, they, were, they all went to Harvard, although I, I, George and John were at Harvard this time, and, and, uh, and Charles was, would, would follow later. There were uh, uh, political attacks on John Quincy because he was considered the favorite to become the next president as Secretary of State. So all the people, were, the, the people who, who supported other candidates you know, were criticizing him. And uh, there was a, he made reference to some criticism in a Philadelphia newspaper about his clothing. He was, was kind of like Thomas Jefferson, one of these intellectuals indifferent to clothing. And he wrote this about this criticism he received from the Philadelphia newspaper. Quote, 
on account of the negligence of my dress, that I wear neither waistcoat nor cravat, and sometimes go to church barefoot. Well, I don't think they said that, but uh, he was exaggerating. But uh, he had a good sense of humor. He's making a joke here. In 1822, he set a personal record by swimming for 50 minutes. And a year later, he was up to an hour and 20 minutes. His wife, Louisa, and their doctor thought he was overdoing it. And they urged him to what she to abandon what she called excess. Excess. So, and he agreed that he would have a one-hour limit on his swims, but then he, he decided on a new challenge for himself to try swimming wearing clothes, which, of course, is very, very difficult because they weigh you down. They get so wet with their, and they're very heavy. Uh, anyway, uh, John and Charles, John and Charles were both at Harvard. I guess George was out, had graduated, and they were both at Harvard, uh, during this time and doing very poorly. And uh, John, uh, John Quincy came to visit them and he was furious with their performance. And Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, The wrathful father went at once to John and Charles' room in the residence hall, where, ignoring their howls at protest, he passed sentence upon them. They would not be allowed to come to Washington for the long Christmas holiday. No dances and parties at the White House for them. And so they had, this This was a tragic thing, tragic scene. The, they, they were forced to stay at Harvard and study, although I don't think they really did study because uh, you know, they weren't studious. And uh, this is too bad. You know, he wouldn't let them come home for Christmas because he thought they were being so lazy. He was, you see how hard he was being on his sons. The following year, his uh, the second son, John, was involved in a drunken riot of Harvard students, and he was expelled for drunken disorderly conduct. So, yeah, this was, you know, what, not what he wanted. And, uh, you know, the, so his strict discipline uh, really didn't work. Uh, meanwhile, Louisa, his wife, was in poor health. She was 46, pregnant again, and she had another miscarriage. And uh, John Quincy was, uh, you know, if presidential election was coming, it would be probably the end of his time as Secretary of State. This is 1823. And he was worried about retirement. He thought, well, what am I going to do next? And he, he dreaded what he called, quote, a, deject, a dejection of spirits, an atrophy of mind, if he, if he retired. Now, he was interested in the presidency, but he did not campaign. He considered that un, unseemly. That was part of, the, part of the culture back then, that, that you didn't, you know, you, if your country wanted you to serve, okay, fine, if the people want me. But they, you weren't supposed to, you know, really want it and go out and try to woo the voters, uh, however, uh, he would go to events which actually had political ramifications. And actually, he and uh, Louisa hosted a ball at their home on F Street and had a thousand guests in honor of Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans, the Battle of New Orleans from 1815. So this was really something, a thousand people. Paul C. Nagel, biographer, wrote this about that night, quote, On that night, an estimated 1,000 guests somehow pushed into the Adams house to dance, drink punch, and gawk at Andrew Jackson. A thousand people, you imagine, gosh, I wonder, they, they must have been really packed in there. But uh, this was, you know, this was really a political thing there. He was honoring Andrew Jackson. Now, in the uh, 1824 presidential election, it, there, were, there were a number of candidates, but it really boiled down, it was pretty much uh, John Quincy Adams and... <coughs> 
Andrew Jackson were the strongest contenders, and they talked about, they referred to them as, quote, one who can write versus one who can fight. In other words, an intellectual against a warrior. John Quincy Adams, the intellectual, and Andrew Jackson, the warrior. The thing is, actually, they were both warriors. John Quincy Adams never went to war, uh, you know, uh, uh, battle on the battlefield, but he had that same warrior spirit. And in the final years of his life, he would show that with courage in the House of Representatives uh, by being the most outspoken opponent of slavery and risking his life. You know, a lot of death threats because of that. So uh, he and, uh, well, uh, John Quincy won the election in 1824. It was a very, very, one of the most controversial elections in American history because Andrew Jackson had the most popular votes and the most electoral votes, but not enough under the under law, under the Constitution, to win. So under the, uh, under the, the law of, of that time, and I believe still today, uh, if, if, if no candidate has enough electoral votes, then the decision is, is turned over to the House of Representatives, who, who has to decide, who has to vote. And, um, and Henry Clay was, a, was, was also a candidate, and he decided to use, and he was very influential, very influential guy. He used his influence and uh, the people, the electoral votes he had, and he gave them to uh, John Quincy Adams. So that meant that John Quincy Adams won the election. Uh, and the thing, the thing is, it was, uh, I think he, John Quincy made a mistake here. If he'd been smart, you know, he would have thought to himself, well, no, Jackson, you know, really won the most votes, and, you know, he should be the, uh, he should be president. But he wasn't, wasn't didn't, didn't have that wisdom. So the thing is, we're a democracy. So he, he accepted those votes from, 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 Andrew Cl- from uh, Henry Clay. And, uh, well, and, the, and then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he offered another mistake he, was, he made. He offered Henry Clay the Secretary of State, you know, which is the springboard of the presidency. That was a mistake. And, uh, and then Henry, Henry Clay accepted. And that was a, actually really both of the men were, they were ruined by this decision that they made. Three, three mistakes, because it was considered a corrupt bargain. People thought, my God, you know, Henry Clay gives the, his votes to, to, to Adams, Adams wins, and then, he, and then Adams gives Clay the Secretary of State position. So this was, uh, yeah, Henry Clay never, he probably, he could have become president himself. He was three times a strong candidate, never did, because this haunted him for the rest of his life, his political career. And uh, they, they both were really, uh, it, was, it was really, really bad. And so... Uh, I think, yeah, Andrew Jackson should have been president in 1824. They didn't have a, they didn't have a, the, uh, under the law, they, they, maybe that we should have had a runoff, but that wasn't in the Constitution. Maybe, you know, a vote, vote for the two top candidates, but that didn't happen. So you had John Quincy becoming president with less votes, and uh, he, uh, he, he was, he was very, un- a lot of people were very upset. This was the beginning of the, uh, of, of the removal of property qualifications. A lot of poor people had voted for Andrew Jackson. He was the hero of the poor and uh, of the common man. And this John Quincy uh, became very unpopular, actually, nationally. And Paul C. Nagel wrote this, quote, His four years in the White House were misery for him and for his wife. All that he hoped to accomplish was thwarted by a hostile Congress. Yeah, the con- you need to get stuff done, but the president needs cooperation from the Congress, and Congress would not cooperate because uh, uh, Adams was very unpopular with, with the people. So anyway, he, was a, he served his term March, in March, March 4th, 1825. 
Uh, John Quincy traveled from his home on F Street to the Capitol for his inauguration. His vice president was John Calhoun. And one of the things that he believed in, he had a lot of ideas for our country, and uh, he was in favor of infrastructure, that the national government should uh, build, build roads and bridges and canals and so forth. And then uh, during his inaugural address, you know, since he was an intellectual, and he, this was a problem he had with the common man as well, common people back then, maybe they had a Bible in their home and that was about it. Most people had very little education, and he was highly educated. This led him to being disconnected from the common people. Anyway, he, he referred to the Roman Empire in his inaugural address, and he said this, quote, The magnificence and splendor of their public works, it's the Roman Empire, are among the imperishable glories of the ancient republics. The roads and aqueducts of Rome have been the admiration of all after ages and have survived thousands of years after all her conquests have been swallowed up in despotism or become the spoil of barbarians. So this was, this was John Quincy Adams, and some of the regular people were scratching their heads because they didn't know much about the Roman Empire, if, if, if anything. Uh, Paul C. Nagel wrote this about 1825, quote, Any citizen could take a place on the stairs leading to the executive chamber, that's in the White House, there to wait a turn to see the president. More impatient individuals often simply barge into his office. So this is how it was in the old days. If you wanted to talk with the president, you just came and got in line and waited. You might wait a, several hours, but you would, sooner or later you would be admitted and could speak with the president. That's the old days, and including a guy named George P. Dodson, who was a physician, a doctor, who was dismissed from the Army, got fired. He was an Army doctor. And he had publicly threatened to assassinate John Quincy Adams. He also was allowed to see the president. You know, this is before we had the, the assassination of, assassinations of uh, Abraham Lincoln and James Garfield and William McKinley, and, and, and then which, you know, we needed security for the president after this, but there was very little security beforehand. In 1826, John Quincy Adams signed a treaty with the Creek Indians in Georgia, uh, ceding much of their land. In other words, much of their land was turned over to the U.S. or the state of Georgia. Uh, this is a very uh, uh, tragic and uh, controversial issue, America, the status of American Indians during this time. On the frontier, Indians were feared and hated. You know, there had been war. And a lot, you know, it was a lot of Americans had been killed by Amer- Indians. There was a war. American Indians were fighting back. There had been a lot. Of, uh, so anyway, yeah, this this is this is a reality that we don't want to. People don't want to talk about today. We we feel it's good that we feel sympathetic to the Indians. What happened to them? We have to remember there was there was war, and as Americans pushed west, Indians fought back. They didn't like what was happening. And they were, they were warriors themselves, so they fought and killed American settlers, which created this fear and hatred of them. Most Americans believed that the Indians were doomed to, dist- to extinction. In 1828, John Quincy Adams wrote this, quote, Colonel Brearley has accompanied one party of Creek Indians from Georgia to the Alabama Territory and is soon going to muster another detachment of them for that purpose. But he says they will not go till they are starved into another sale of their lands which must soon happen, as they will exercise no industry and now live only upon what they receive from the U.S. Americans at that time believed that the land was for settlement and there was no room for hunting and nomadic societies. Since the Indians 
Yeah, they'd been, they did some farming, but they were primarily hunters. In his annual message in 1825, uh, John Quincy wrote this, quote, The spirit of improvement is abroad upon the earth, while foreign nations less blessed than ourselves are advancing with gigantic strides in the career of public improvement. Were we to slumber, would it not be to cast away the bounties of providence and doom ourselves to perpetual misery? So he was in favor of the, of the government building highways and, uh, and canals, and also he thought the, the government should promote science and astronomy, and especially this, the common people, they, they, they were scratching their heads when he talked about stuff like that, promoting science and astronomy. And then there's another quote that's kind of similar to that, but has some very, uh, there had some controversial words which really hurt him politically, quote, while foreign nations less blessed with that freedom which is power than ourselves are advancing with giant strides in the career of public improvement, were we to slumber in indolence or fold up our arms and proclaim to the world that we are palsied by the will of our constituents, would it not be to cast away the bounties of providence and doom ourselves to perpetual misery? Now the key words there, he refers to uh, uh, being palsied by the will of our constituents. In other words, the American people didn't want these things, so but we needed, but they should be done anyway. That there wasn't a strong public uh, desire for uh, infrastructure, and so th- this was very offensive. People thought, "My God, he's, he's anti-democratic," you know. So it's very, very a big political mistake. Those words, palsied by the will of our constituents. However, despite his political problems, uh, you know these things actually were being done anyway. There was a national road from Washington to New Orleans that was being built. Another one from, from Missouri to Mexico. Lighthouses were being built to make it safer for ships coming to harbor. A lot of money was coming into the government through sale of public land. In 1825, the, the, in October, the Erie Canal was completed. You know, a canal is like an artificial river. It's like a, when they dig a trench that boats can pass through it. And the Erie Canal linked Lake Erie and the Great Lakes to the Hudson River which flows down to New York City and then the Atlantic Ocean. And this really led to the boom of New York City because uh, you had all this, uh, that, that meant all the products which could be shipped to the Great Lakes could then make their way by ship uh, to, uh, uh, to the East Coast through the Erie Canal. And this led to New York City becoming the, power, the very wealthy, powerful city that it became. Uh, so as I said, he had he had a lot of these visitors would come, and everyone was expe- people expected to be to be able to see the president. You can't do that now. One of his visitors in 1826 announced himself as Saint Peter and spoke violently for 15 minutes. And just imagine how he was patient listening to this fellow before he was finally ushered away. Another visitor identified himself as a dentist, and John Quincy took advantage of the opportunity by having a decayed tooth removed and having the, the tartar, which had been accumulating for four years, removed as well since his, since his last visit to the dentist. By 1826, uh, there had been all these, uh, most of the, con- yeah, the countries of, of uh, continental Latin America had become independent of Spain. Spain had lost most of its empire, except for Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam, but everything else was gone. Everything in South America, Mexico, and Central America, well, they were all gone. And then there was a, a meeting of these countries, of really, uh, really um, you could call American countries from North and South America, a meeting in Panama, and the United States was invited. But it also included you know, countries in the Caribbean, including Haiti, 
which was, uh, had become independent of France and through a successful slave rebellion. Now, this scared, the, the Haitian Revolution, Revolution scared the heck out of white folks in the South. This was their ultimate fear because in, in that revolution, all the French white people in Haiti, or formerly known as Saint-Domingue, had been killed or left Haiti. And so Haiti was going to attend this meeting. And so therefore the folks in the South or the politicians said, we can't go to this. That means we would be meeting with these Haitian leaders on a level of equality. And so the United States did not attend that meeting. In 1826, his father died, July 4th, and so that was, he lost his dad and he felt real, real bad about it. And uh, we're going to talk about that next time. Thank you so much for watching. God bless you. Hope you find a good history book to read. And I really appreciate you watching. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 5. We stopped last time in 1826, and John Quincy Adams was president. He was the sixth president. He got uh, word in, he'd been, he'd been in office about a little more than a year, and he got word in late June that his father was, was father's, uh, was was dying, and so he made he traveled north to to, to Boston to Massachusetts, and uh, but he, but he didn't make it. His father was gone. His father had died. His father had died. The famous John Adams, the second U.S. president. He lost his dad, and uh, after his father's death, uh, he he wrote about coming home to Quincy and their home. Quote. Everything about the house is the same. I was not fully sensible of the change till I entered his bedchamber. That moment was inexpressibly painful and struck me as if it had been a, an arrow to the heart. My father and mother have departed. The charm which has always made this house to me an abode of enchantment is dissolved. And yet my attachment to it and to the whole region round is stronger than I ever felt it before. Uh, John Quincy Adams gave his uh, annual message to Congress in 1826, and uh, historian Richard Hofstetter, Hofstadter wrote this about that, uh, about that uh, speech. Quote, His first annual message to Congress was one of the most wholly impolitic documents in the history of government. Yet it was very prophetic, because uh, eventually the, the things that he, he talked about all came to pass, including a canals connecting the Chesapeake Bay to the Ohio River and Delaware Rivers, national roads, and military academies. John Quincy Adams had this to say, quote, in that message, among the first, perhaps the, the very first instrument for the improvement of the conditions of men is knowledge. He, he promoted uh, astronomical observatories, which he called lighthouses of the sky, and he was mocked for this. He really was a pioneer in astronomy, but, you know, way ahead of his time. He, was, he continued to be very worried about his son, George, and he wrote to him in 1827 recommending that he write a diary. And Actually, for most of his life, John Quincy Adams would spend about an hour a day writing his diary, and he wrote this, quote, A diary is the timepiece of life and will never fail of keeping time or of getting out of order with it. A diary, if honestly kept, is one of the best preservatives of morals. A man who commits to paper from day to day the employment of his time, the places he frequents, the persons with whom he converses, the actions with which he is occupied, will have a perpetual guard over himself. His record is a second conscience of steady exertion and of composure in disappointment. And he wrote another letter in 1827 to his son Charles, 
who was experiencing depression. And he wrote this quote, The more you have of necessary occupation, the less you will feel of this depressing despondency. He believed that uh, waking up early in the morning formed moral character. And in a letter to Charles, he had this to say, quote, In 1828, Early rising is so indissolubly connected with many of the most active virtues that it may be laid down as an axiom of almost universal application. Give me an early riser, and I will give you a virtuous man. In another letter, he wrote this, quote, Genius is the child of toil. All my success in the world has been the blessing of heaven upon drudgery, the reward of untiring, unmitigated lab- labors. During this time, finally, his, the third son was doing, was doing well. However, George and John were not doing well. They were, they were, they were, they were very troubled. He wrote this in 1827, quote, Without self-control, nothing difficult can be achieved. And the first victory to be won is over sensual indulgence. In February 1828, uh, his son John married a young lady named Mary Helen in the White House. George was really going down quickly. He was lazy, crazy, drinking, and womanizing. So his, his life was, was, really, was really in bad shape. The summer of 1827, John Quincy was sick, and he spent the summer in Quincy. At that time, the presidency was a nine-month year job, so you could spend three months of the summer. And most people wanted to get out of Washington City in the summer because of the, the threat of disease. Uh, he was supporting his brother Thomas, who was drinking and depressed. In 1828, there was the groundbreaking ceremony for the uh, Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, and John Quincy came and spoke, uh, spoke at that time. And he called that canal that was going to be dug he said this, quote, A conquest over physical nature, such as never yet been achieved by man. The wonders of the ancient world, the pyramids, the pyramids of Egypt, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Temple of Ephesus, the Mausoleum of Artemisia, the Wall of China, sink into significance before it. So that, you know, he loved this, you know, he's a funny guy and very intellectual, and he would love, love to make re- these references in his speeches. So he was the guy who, who, who plunged the first shovel into the soil, and it hit a, the roots of a hickory tree, you know, right off the bat. And it was an ominous sign because they called Andrew Jackson Old Hickory. 1828 was a, uh, was a presidential election year, and he was up for re-election, and uh, the, uh, it was kind of, the Jackson campaign accused John Quincy Adams as acting as a pimp for the Russian Tsar when he had been there you know, as ambassador. Now, there were some allegations, there was some, there was some story that a, a young American lady had an affair with the Tsar, but uh, John Quincy had not, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't that pimp for the Tsar. And he responded to this uh, accusation, quote, he called it, quote, the thousand malicious lies which outvenom all the worms of the Nile River. <laughs> so this was uh, the 1828 election. Yeah, Jackson campaigned very, very hard, and uh, and John Quincy basically not at all. He didn't believe in campaigning, and uh, of course he was very po- unpopular from the beginning. And Jackson easily won the election. Uh, one he won. Jackson had 178 electoral votes and John Quincy, 83. 
So that meant uh, John Quincy was a one-term president. During this time, the last year of his time in office, he, he became very uh, enthusiastic about tree planting. And he planted many trees on his Quincy property in Massachusetts, including oak, mape, maple, chestnut, walnut, shagbark, cherry, peach, plum, and apple. So by March of 1829, uh, Andrew Jackson was inaugurated as the uh, seventh U.S. president, and that was the end of uh, John Quincy's presidency. And he was actually planning to go to spend the rest of his life in 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 Massachusetts and retire there and uh, but he he spent he he stayed on several months um, in Washington City after you know after giving up power and leaving the White House and they got news in 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 June three months after after uh, he, he he left the White House that his his son George had died he was 28 years old and he had drowned uh, near New York City. He was on a Providence, Rhode Island to Washington City steamship. And John Quincy wrote this afterward, quote, There is a pressure upon my heart and upon my spirits, inexpressible, and which I never knew before. As it subsides, it gives way to dejection and despondency. So the reports were, uh, he was supposed to come to Washington, and, and you know John Quincy was hoping that he could help him turn his life around. Uh, but uh, he was, he'd been doing all this drinking, and on the ship, reportedly, he was hallucinating. And he thought the uh, seabirds, you know, the, like the seagulls that would follow ships looking for food, he thought the seabirds were talking to him. And also the machinery of the ship, he thought the, sh the machinery was talking to him as well. He thought the passengers were talking about him and laughing at him. And he either fell or jumped off the ship. So that was, that was very tragic. And... Uh, but uh, this, this brought uh, John Quincy and Louisa closer to each other. However, John Quincy was depressed. He came home to Quincy and spent some time there and uh, was trying to figure out what to do. He, he spent time writing a biography of his father, John Adams, but he, he, it wasn't, uh, you know, he couldn't uh, really focus on that. And then some, some people came to him and asked him if he would be interested in being uh, serving again in the House of Representatives, and he jumped on that idea. He thought, well, I, I, he wanted to do it, so he accepted that, and he was elected and to the House of Representatives, representing his district in Massachusetts, and he served for the rest of his life, for the next 18 years, from 1830 to 1848. One of his great, great achievements during that time was to, uh, John Smithson was a wealthy Englishman who donated money for uh, what became the Smithsonian Institute to increase and he called, it was meant for, quote, the increase and diffusion of knowledge. And John Quincy, one of his great achievements was uh, really fighting to save that money for its intended purpose. After being elected by his constituents, the people in his district, uh, for U.S. Congress, he wrote this, quote, My election as President of the United States was not, so, not half so gratifying. So he had, this is actually the, some actually the best parts of his times of his life, maybe not the happiest, but the most productive. He continued to be an intellectual, and uh, he he enjoyed history and he enjoyed poetry. Enjoyed love. He loved writing poetry. In 1831, he wrote a 90 stanza uh, with with each lines, each line, uh, eight lines in each stanza, a poem about a guy named Dermot McMurrow who was the king of Leinster in Ireland, who, to retain his throne in a struggle with other Irish kings, 
in the 12th century, entered into an alliance with King Henry of England, which led to the eventual subjugation of Ireland by England. So this guy, you know, basically was a traitor. And uh, he wrote this poem about a very tragic fellow who, because of his actions, he helped the Ira- uh, England conquer Ireland. He re- so he wrote this very long poem. Uh, in, in 1831, John Quincy considered Cicero the greatest mind of ancient Rome, and one of his regrets in life, he wished that as a young man, he had been able to spend one year entirely studying Cicero in Latin. And he believed that if he had done that, he could be more useful to his country. Uh, you got to love John Quincy Adams. In 1834, his son John was also dying of alcoholism. Tragic. He wrote this quote. John Quincy wrote this quote. Public affairs, inauspicious as their movements are, afford me rather relief and relaxation from these heavier domestic and personal afflictions. I think this is why he wanted to serve in Congress, because uh, he had these things that were really weighing him down, the death of his son George and now his, his son John. And um, so this he seemed to need, to, need to, to keep working. He couldn't really retire. In 1835, his son, Char- the one son, Charles, who was, who was doing well, took charge of the family finances, so he didn't have to worry about that. And John Quincy wrote this about, about his son, quote, All my hopes of futurity in this world are now centered upon him and upon his employment of his time. Uh, Paul C. Nagel, the historian, wrote this, quote, Immediately it was as if a great hand was lit, a great Lude was lifted from his shoulders, as indeed it was. So, yeah, his son Charles really was a big help So that, because the, the financial issues were pretty complicated with the different people that he was supporting in their various properties. In 1834, Louisa wrote a letter to their son Charles, and she said this, quote, Your father is a sturdy white oak and not to be crushed by the reptiles who envy his talents and would destroy him if they could. Uh, she wanted him to retire, and she, as she said, quote, From all these ill-requited troubles, how much of bitter strife, of endless toil, of mortified vanity, and of disappointed ambition would be saved to himself and his family. However, he could not retire, as she wrote, quote, Without risking a total extinction of life for the want of a suitable sphere of action, so she was kind of, she was fed up with his political career, but she knew that she ne- he needed to do it. In September of, of 1834, their son John died of alcoholism. He was 31. And uh, John Quincy wrote this, quote, Let me believe that for suffering upon earth there is some compensation in heaven, and that there the tears of sorrow are wiped away, and that every virtue shall be blessed with its reward. My child, my child. So he was, this is devastating, the death of two sons. During his, he called his morning walks, quote, a melancholy pilgrimage in which to divert my thoughts from the bitterness of my misfortune. The Marquis de Lafayette was visiting the U.S. in 1834, and uh, there was a tribute to him, the great French volunteer of the American Revolution. And, and in, in this tribute, John Quincy said this, quote, How strange was that deep conviction of the French people that their chief glory and happiness consisted in the vehemence of their affection for their king because he was descended in an unbroken male line of genealogy from St. Louis. So all these, King Louis Seventeenth, all these uh, kings, uh, and uh, apparently, I didn't know this, he was, they were descended from a, from a saint 
or a man considered a saint. Be not, not, good thing to study. In 1834, uh, Paul C. Nagel wrote this about, about that time. John Quincy Adams took special delight in a report about a beggar who slipped into the White House one night and found his, ways, his way upstairs to President Jackson's bedroom. There at 2 a.m., the intruder began pounding on the locked door, shouting that he was hungry. Such was the White House security in 1835. That same year, this Englishman, John Smithson, gave the United States $500,000, or it was bequeathed, for the purpose of establishing the, quote, Smithsonian Institution for the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. And, you know, the thing is, all these congressmen thought, ah, look at this money, let's, let's, let's spend it. And uh, John Quincy had to fight. He fought hard. He said no, and he didn't even want it to be like used for public schools or universities. He he wanted. He said we have to use this for one thing and one thing only. Uh, historian William J. Cooper wrote this quote: Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st, the, the Smithsonian Institution developed into a depository for national treasures and a variety of educational and research activities. No one was more responsible than Adams for guaranteeing that the the Smithsonian endowment did not become a piggy bank for self-interested politicians. Moreover, no one else had more impact on placing the institution on the path that led to its current distinction. So that was one of the great achievements of his life, achievements of his life, the uh, Smithsonian Institution. In 1835, John Quincy attended a Harvard program of student orations in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote. He expressed horror at the deterioration he thought he saw in student performance. John Quincy wrote this about about this uh, performance. How flat, how stale, and unprofitable now. So he believed that uh, Harvard was seriously declining and that he, he he thought maybe this is his cause, that Harvard needed, quote, an electric shock to restore it from a paralytic state and I will make an effort to apply it. However, there was no interest in his offer to help uh, revive Harvard, so that did not become his cause. His cause became slavery, which was a more and more uh, an explosive issue. In 1835, uh, John Quincy wrote this, quote, Slavery is in all probability the wedge which will ultimately split up this union. It is the source of all the disaffection to it in both parts of the country. So he was, uh, yeah, this led to him, you know, actually getting a lot of critics. And uh, uh, John Quincy wrote to his son Charles in 1836, quote, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was tortured by an imagination that the whole human race, without a single exception, were leagued together in a conspiracy for his destruction. I have not yet come to that. And he was talking about his political enemies, and he mentioned them, quote, Jackson, Van Buren, Webster, White, and Harrison, by themselves or by their ambassadors, are parties to this holy alliance. They hunt me like a partridge upon the mountains. They had what they called was there was this House gag rule thing in the, in the House of Representatives. Congress uh, uh, representatives would receive what they call pet petitions. I think it's true today. Any citizen can write a letter and basically expressing an opinion or asking for something, and then that, that letter, that petition, can be read in the House. And uh, there were more and more petitions coming in to uh, congressmen from the North uh, protesting against slavery. You know, people 
the abolition movement was growing stronger and stronger. And then this uh, so-called gag rule had been passed in which it was prohibited to mention slavery in the House. And, uh, and so the, and this became actually uh, John Quincy's greatest cause because he fought the gag rule. And uh, he, he was, cons- they had all these, uh, up, there was an uproar in Congress because he was, uh, he, would, he would talk about slavery and then the, the, there would be an objection. So uh, because of his, his words, these spe- when he would violate the gag rule, there was a move to have him censured. And now if, that, if, if that happens, then the individual has the right to defend themselves. In 1837, on February 9th, he had a full day, gave a full-day speech in his defense, quote, and he said this, quote, Let that gentleman, let every member of this house ask his own heart with what confidence, with what boldness, with what freedom, with what firmness he would give utterance to his opinions on this floor, if for every word, for a mere question asked of the speaker, involving a question belonging to human freedom, to the rights of man, he was liable to be tried as a felon or an incendiary and sent to the penitentiary. He's trying to say, yeah, this uh, house gag rule is, you know, it's, 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 it's immoral. It's, it's illegal because, you know, freedom is one of the great uh, concepts of America. And you can't talk about freedom in the house. So this, uh, and anyway, in 1836, he said this, quote, I hold the resolution that means the gag rule, to be a direct violation of the Constitution of the United States, the rules of the House, and the rights of my constituents. So he fought the gag rule for eight years, and this was, part, this was really when he became you know, this great uh, leader fighting against slavery, because the first right was to be able to talk about, to talk about slavery. And these Southern congressmen didn't want it to even be, to be brought up because they were so uh, defensive about it. Harlow Giles Unger wrote this, quote, Louisa fretted about his health and safety, but she, found, but she had lost all influence over him and could, could do nothing to restrain him. He was unstoppable, a meteor spiraling out of control in the political firmament. See, she's, he's talking about he, he kept in, you know, objecting to the gag rule and getting up and, and talking and saying things about, mentioned slavery and there would be, uproar in the house and and it was uh, and and, and th- this really became his great cause in life. In February 1837, their home on F Street, the mailbox was flooded with more than the usual number of death threats. It's getting all these death threats. And Louisa wrote this quote, "Dark terror round my spirit cling, protect us against the murderer's hand. Oh hear our cry and pity, Lord, for blood for blood they lust. So he was a very brave man. He, he, he wasn't going to, he didn't back down. He never backed down. And he did not enjoy quiet days in the House uh, of Representatives. Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote, what Adams preferred to, to describe were, were, days, were the days when pandemonium ruled as members, mostly from the South, tried to subdue whom some of them called, quote, the madman from Massachusetts. So this was his great cause, and he loved this where he showed his warrior spirit. Uh, John Quincy and Louisa were raising the two, their two granddaughters uh, of their son, John, who had died. And Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote, No youngsters had a more thoughtful grandpa than John. Under his supervision, granddaughters Mary Louisa and Fanny, now aged 10 and 8, read the Bible in French and English. 
So thus the Andrew Jackson, who was president, uh, you know, he was they were, they continued to be enemies and political political enemies, and he called uh, he referred to John Quincy Adams quote wickedness has never been surpassed by anything in recorded history. <laughs> so kind of exaggerating there. In 1838, uh, James Madison died, one of the founding fathers, and uh, John Quincy gave a speech in which he talked about the fact that the American revolutionary generation was disappearing through death. And he said this, quote, Where are they now? We look around in vain. To them, this crowded theater full of human life and all its stages of existence, full of the glowing exultation of youth, of the steady maturity of manhood, the sparkling eyes of beauty, and the gray hairs of revered age. All this to them is as the solitude of the sepulcher. We think of this and say, how short is human life? But then we turn back our thoughts again to the scene, over which the falling curtain has but now closed upon the drama of the day. From the saddening thought that they are no more, we call for comfort upon the memory of what they were, and our hearts leap for joy that they were our fathers. Oh, very touching, you know, because he'd lost his father, and uh, his father, he had, he had a good father, and his father was gone. So that's why it was very personal for him, the disappearance of the founding father's generation. In 1839, John Quincy had time-consuming correspondence with an actor named James H. Hackett, who often portrayed the, the Shakespeare character Hamlet. And uh, John Quincy called, called Shakespeare's Hamlet, quote, the masterpiece of the human mind, the heart and soul of man, and all their perfection and their frailty. His correspondence with this actor, this fellow uh, Hackett, was published, and then uh, he, he called their correspondence, quote, more tickling to my vanity than it was to be elected president of the United States. In August, there was a slave ship uh, called the Amistad, which was uh, transporting slaves in Cuba from one place to another. In Cuba, the roads were so bad, it was faster to go by boat. And uh, Now, the slave trade at this time had been, was illegal. Uh, the British and Americans had, had, you know, slavery was still being practiced, but the slave trade was illegal. And this was a, this was a ship that had brought new slaves from Africa and, uh, you know, and was able to get them across the Atlantic. Uh, and so it was, it was illegal under inter international law. And they were being transferred from one place to another in Cuba. And there was a rebellion on the ship, and the slaves took over the ship. And, they, and then the remaining crewmen who, were, who survived the rebellion, they were, the slaves ordered them to, take, to sail the ship back to Africa. And then uh, during the day, you know, when the sun is out, it's easy to tell you know, direction, you know, the sun, east and west. So they were, during the day, they were sailing east to Africa. But during the night, uh, these, uh, the, the, the sailors were actually going, going west. And, this, and they ended up in Connecticut. And the, the ship was actually captured. And the slaves all uh, ended up in jail in New Haven, Connecticut, 53 slaves. Now the, and then, then, then there was this big legal issue that, that, that erupted. Should they be free or should they be slaves? Now, the Spanish found out about it. And they said, this is our property. It needs to be returned to uh, Cuba. And uh, then there was, because of the abolition movement, the abolitionists have said, no, this is, you know, they wanted them to be freed. And um, so it became a, a big, a big uh, legal, a legal issue that eventually uh, John Quincy became very heavily involved in. 
During this time, uh, politics was keeping him alive. And uh, in 1838, he wrote about, uh, there was a story about uh, some Boston banks had gone bankrupt and could not pay their depositors. John Quincy wrote this quote, Oh, you Boston banks, how, how I blush to think what exposures are made from day to day, and the worst and basest of all in my own native land. Alas, there is something worse than that. It is the coldness and indifference with which these disclosures are received. It is to see these insolent banks demanding to be absolved from the penalties of their own delinquencies. In 1838, John Quincy wrote about the lessons of Christianity, which he called, quote, lessons of peace, of benevolence, of meekness, of brotherly love, of charity, utterly incompatible with the ferocious spirit of slavery. The temperance movement was gaining steam. Those who wanted to ban uh, alcohol, make it illegal, and John Quincy did not support that. He believed that true reform came to the alcoholic only, quote, by the dictate of his own conscience and the energy of his own will. Of course, there was no Alcoholics Anonymous back then to help people or rehabs. In 1840, John Quincy tripped on the floor of the house and dislocated his right shoulder. Although it was uh, somebody was able to get it, push it back in, and he was able to. Con- he was okay. Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote: "By now, for Adams, nearly 73, the challenge of standing guard over the virtue in the house." was more sustaining than, than even his food and drink. So he was really getting it. He was really enjoying his time in, in Congress. Louisa was struggling with depression. She wrote a story, which she called Adventures of a Nobody. And she was eating a lot of chocolate, sketching, and uh, cultivating silkworms. We're going to have to stop now. We'll continue next time. Thank you very, very much for watching. Hope you find a good history book to read. God bless you, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is John Quincy Adams, Part 6. Today we're going to wrap up the life of, of John Quincy Adams. We stopped last time in 1840. Uh, his life, wife, Louisa, was depressed. Uh, she'd had 12 pregnancies, 7 miscarriages, 1 stillborn child. And uh, her oldest son, George, had committed suicide in 1828. Um, she... Um, she was trying to figure out what, what she could do to feel better, and she decided to buy and free a slave who was a female cook. And she wrote, she was, quote, almost as glad as if, a, as if I was buying my own freedom. She had this to say about the White House, quote, There is something in this great unsocial house which depresses my spirits beyond expression and makes it impossible for me to feel at home or to fancy that I have a home anywhere. That same year, in 1840, uh, John Quincy was asked by abolitionists abolitionist to defend the Amistad prisoners. These fellows, these uh, slaves, African slaves that had been uh, originally were in Cuba and then wound up in prison in, in Connecticut. It became a Supreme Court case. And, you know, the Cubans were saying, or the Spanish were saying, oh, these should be returned to Cuba. And these abolitionists wanted them to be freed. And uh, John Quincy responded to this uh, request, quote, I endeavor to excuse myself upon the plea of my age, he was 73, and inefficiency after a lapse of more than 30 years. They urged me so much and represented the case of those unfortunate men as a case of life and death that I yielded. So he was going to be a lawyer again. Well, actually, the, you know, he did 
practice law so- somewhat, not a great deal, and never enjoyed it. But this this case he he got involved in, and it was the greatest case of his life, really. In February of 1841, the Amistad trial started. And entering the courtroom, John Quincy Adams felt his only resource was a, quote, fervent prayer that presence of mind may not utterly fail me at the trial I am about to go through. In his opening argument, he said this, quote, I appeal to plead the cause of justice and now of liberty and life in behalf of many of my fellow men. And then the trial didn't last too long. And his on the last day of the trial, he, he made his closing argument, quote, In taking then my final leave of this bar and of this honorable court, I can only ejaculate a fervent petition to heaven that every member of it may go to his final account with as little of earthly frailty to answer for as those illustrious dead. Now, he was referring to the former Supreme Court chief uh, Supreme Court justices who had died. And that you may, every one, after the close of a long and virtuous career in this world, be received at the portals of the next with the approving sentence, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. (laughs) So he was talking about, you know, he's talking about these, referring to their deaths, you know, we're all going to die. And he's talking about how hopefully they would all, you know, be welcomed in heaven. And so this was kind of a, this was a dramatic uh, ending to his, his argument. And uh, I think it had, it had an impact. And March 9th, the verdict was announced that there was, fr- the Amistad prisoners were freed. They would be freed. And uh, they, were, they were allowed to go back to Africa. I believe they ended up in Sierra Leone, which was a place that the British established after the ba- slave trade had been banned. Sierra Leone was established for... Uh, when the British would capture uh, slave ships, and you know they really couldn't take them back to their homes, and um, uh, and you know if they lived fairly near, maybe they could make their ways make make their way from Sierra Leone back to their home. Now the Amistad prisoners, I don't know. I believe they they were, they were sent to Sierra Leone. I don't know if they ever got back to their own homes because you know Africa is a, is a pretty big place. So anyway, this was a great victory for uh, John Quincy Adams. He he won the case and the Amistad prisoners were freed. 1840 had been an election year, and the new incoming president uh, who was elected was William Henry Harrison, and he only served uh, for a month because he died shortly, uh, you know, only a month into office. However, uh, in 1841, during his brief uh, uh, time as president, he considered John Quincy Adams an old friend and almost a brother. That's what he would say. And at White House dinners, he would slap John Quincy on the back and asked John Quincy to make the first toast. In 1841, uh, John Quincy uh, recalled uh, visiting the British Museum in London when he, when he was a boy and seeing the Magna Carta. And one of the signers, he noticed, was a man named Sir de Quincy. And John Quincy wrote this quote, I said to myself, there is blood of that man and there is blood of John Adams flowing in my veins. Therefore, he could not compromise with evil. He had to be a good guy. In 1839, John Quincy said this, quote, May I be permitted to inquire whether religion is not herself the child of education, and whether it would not, it would not be more proper to say that education 
was from its first origin the governing principle of the settlement of New England, or in other words, that education was the mother of New England. Jesus came to teach and not to compel. His law was a law of liberty. He left the human mind and human action free. Defective education requires obedience rather than freedom. An educated people will be a free people. In 1841, he had an an attack of boils on his scalp and loins, and uh, which uh, prevented some, but he kept going out to these various dinners and lectures and evening activities. Uh, To cover these boils, he wore a white, one time he wore a white turban. Another time he wore a silk cap with tassels. His son Charles wrote this quote, It is singular that a man should find some sort of external excitement so essential for his health. So he kept going out even though he had these boils. In 1843, he was, he was photographed. This is the first time a president had, had been photographed. And that's the cover. That's the, the, photo, that's the picture we used in the, in the previous video. 1843, his, uh, his, his grandson Henry one day refused to go to school. And uh, John heard this temper, John Quincy heard this temper tantrum. And uh, he knew exactly what was going on. He, didn't, he never said a word. He walked over, found uh, his, his grandson, and took him by the hand, and uh, walked him to school and into his classroom to his seat. Never said a word. And uh, the boy was in awe of his grandfather. And this, this uh, boy became the famous historian, Henry Adams, years later. In 1843, Cincinnati in Ohio was building the, the first astronomical observatory in the United States. And John Quincy was invited to speak at the laying of the cornerstone because he had really been such a pioneer in promoting astronomy and had a great love of it. And, you know, his family was against him going because he was an old guy and uh, his health wasn't great. But he, he decided he wanted to go. And this was, this was some trip. He traveled overland to, to Buffalo and then uh, in New York and then took, uh, a, uh, took a ship to Cleveland, Ohio, and then a canal to the canal to Columbus, the Erie Canal, or the uh, not the Erie Canal, the Ohio Canal, and uh, and there were he was well known, and this became a very a wonderful trip because he was extremely popular in the North. The abolitionist movement was growing, and you know he was this strong uh, uh, spokesperson against slavery, and uh, he encountered African Americans on the trip who really loved him, were very grateful for what he was doing to try to end slavery. And he had this to say uh, dur- during this trip, quote, The whole soul of every citizen must be devoted to improving the condition of this country and of mankind. In, in, uh, backing up a little bit, in, when he was in Utica, New York, he visited a female seminary and they had a gathering for him. One of the trustees read, an, read extracts from his mother's published letters to his father and to him. And John Quincy openly sobbed. He's very touched by the words of his mother read out loud. On November 1, he had been in Cleveland, Ohio. There were public honors and salutations for him. As I said, he took the Ohio Canal south. Finally made it to Cincinnati. The Ohio Canal went to, to the Ohio River, and then he took a steamboat to Cincinnati and gave a speech there. And he, he in the speech, he referred to the progress of mankind. And he talked about the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, and then some of the great thinkers who had helped mankind to progress. 
including Nicholas Copernicus, Johannes Kepler, and Isaac Newton. He was extremely popular. Everywhere he went, these crowds were coming to see him. And um, a historian, William J. Cooper, wrote this quote, In John Quincy Adams, the people saw the continuity of their country. This sept septuagenarian was not only the literal son of a major founding father, he had actually known and spoken with George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, founders all. Moreover, Washington, Madison, and Monroe, as well as his own father, had appointed him to office. No other living political figure possessed such a lineage. All those who came out knew they would never again have the chance to see and hear a man whose public career spanned the life of the nation. So he had, this was really something, you know, he, he was pretty disappointed and, you know, he was so unpopular in, uh, as president, but during this time he was extremely popular. Everywhere he went, people were excited to see John Quincy Adams. He was a national hero. However, uh, the trip was really too hard on him. When he got home, he was very sick and tired. Very tough trip. And he was, he was nervous, agitated, and had an erratic memory. Uh, and he, he wrote that during this time that any event, quote, scatters my thoughts into a cloud of confusion, and I cannot retain the memory of anything from day to day. Louisa wrote a letter to their son, Charles, and she wrote this quote, He will do nothing and take no care of himself, but lives in a state of perpetual excitement. So <laughs> after the trip, he was, uh, he was pretty uh, worn out. So, and again, he continued his fight against the gag rule, and again, he was censured. He had a five, made a five-day defense and, uh, in uh, opposing slavery. And Henry, Henry Wise called John Quincy Adams, quote, the acutest, the astutest, the archest enemy of Southern slavery that ever existed. Uh, now, by this time, uh, John Tyler was U.S. president, and Harlow, biographer Harlow Giles Unger wrote this quote, John Quincy Adams' popularity exceeded that of the president, and had he defended his beliefs as aggressively when he was president, he would certainly never have suffered the humiliation of defeat in his run for re-election Few Americans knew or understood him as president. Almost every American now knew and understood him, indeed revered him, after his battle with Congress. And millions now listened to every word of the sage of Quincy. Hundreds lined up to see him, to hear his words, to try to talk to him as he walked about Washington, driving to and from the Capitol each day. Luminaries from all parts of the United States, Britain and Europe called at his home. Charles Dickens and his wife stopped for lunch, and Dick Dickens asked for John Quincy's autograph before leaving. John Quincy had emerged as one of the most celebrated and beloved personages in the Western world. In 1844, he finally succeeded in, in having the gag rule repealed, which meant that uh, the word slavery, slavery could be discussed in the House of Representatives, and this was a great, great victory for him because he'd worked so hard on it. And his response in December 2nd was, quote, Blessed, forever blessed be the name of God. However, his, his health was declining, and he also wrote at this time, he described himself as having, quote, a daily deepening consciousness of decay in body and mind, an unquenchable thirst for repose, yet a motive for clinging to public life, 
till the last of my public friends shall cast me off. These are my cares and sorrows. In 1842, Cherokee Indians in, uh, and Creek Indians in Georgia were forced to move west. Now, they, they had become farmers, and you know, so they, they had adopted the white man's ways, and John Quincy was opposed to their being moved west, and he wrote this quote, The expulsion of the southern tribes, not only from their hunting grounds, but from their own domain, from the possession of the soil acquired by their conversion, at our instance and under our persuasion, from the hunter to the agricultural state, from their planted lands, from their comfortable dwellings, from their domestic hearths and the sepulchres of their fathers, pledged by solemn treaties to their perpetual possession, they have been expelled by the rude hand of violence. So this, in 1842, John Quincy met Charles Dickens, we mentioned. He was the famous author of so many wonderful novels, including Oliver Twist and, and so forth. Uh, John Quincy wrote a poem in 1846. He wrote this, quote, From the recesses of my heart, resentment's bitter sting expel. Bid all the fiends of hate depart, and love alone my bosom dwell. Now remember, he'd had so much political fighting with others, and, you know, he was... This was a very honest sentiment, and he was, he was struggling, you know, to, to overcome these resentments that he had against his political enemies. In the summer of 1846, he was 80 years old and still swimming in the Potomac River at dawn in the morning in summer. And he wrote this quote, The recollection of the past is pleasing and melancholy. Not a soul now living will be here in 1924. That's the year my father was born. My own term, how soon it will close. Will prayers to God preserve the branches and shoots from my father's stock? What a phantasmagoria is human life. It was the, and on the 18th death anniversary of their son, George, Louisa wrote this, quote, Pardon, pardon, the sin of thy servant for deserting the children of my tenderest love for mere worldly purposes at that tender age when they most required a mother's watchful care. It was thy will to take both my cherished sons from me. So she was feeling real bad, you know, that they had left George and John when they were eight and six years old, respectively, when they went to Russia. Left them for, didn't see them for six years. In 1846, John Quincy had a stroke, and uh, he, he only made, he made a partial recovery, but he continued working. And in 1847, he attended the ceremony uh, for the corner, laying of the cornerstone for the Smithsonian building. In May, the planet Neptune was discovered, and John Quincy celebrated. He was very, very happy. However, he was also uh, you know, feeling bad about his declining health. And he wrote, quote, I am unable to put on my own clothes. He had partial paralysis. However, he could walk, lie down, and speak. And he still went to the House of Representatives every day, despite his, uh, his uh, weakening condition. And he wrote this, quote, This can hardly be called life, but tis destiny ordained for me, and at which I ought not to repine. That I shall ever be better, I have scarce reason to expect. It disqualifies me for all business. On, uh, in July of 1847, uh, low, uh, John Quincy and Louisa celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. He, con he continued to enjoy reading uh, authors such as Herodotus, 
from ancient Rome. That year, Louisa had a bad fall and hurt her face. John Quincy was invited to lay the to the ceremony and for for the laying of the cornerstone for the Washington Monument, but he was unable to attend. And Abraham Lincoln was actually in Congress at this time, so they were they were both served in Congress in the House at the same time. In 1848, February 21, he had another stroke, and which turned out to be fatal. And he was on the House of he was he was on sitting in the he was sitting in the House of Representatives. He was at work. He collapsed on the floor, and uh, they were they didn't take him to the hospital. They didn't guess there was no hospital in in uh, Washington then. And so he was uh, he was brought to the the speaker's uh, the speaker's office where he spent uh, the, the next uh, two days before he died. And he called for Henry Clay, who, who came and saw him, and Clay, Clay wept. And then his, actually, he went, into a, he went into a coma, and by the time Louisa came, he was unconscious, and he never, he never regained consciousness. Now, his last words reportedly were, quote, This is the end of earth. I am composed. And he died on February 23rd, at 7 p.m. in 1848, in the Speaker's office in the House of Representatives. His remains were brought to Quincy and placed in the vault in the church there. Uh, Louisa died three years later in 1851. Paul C. Nagel wrote this quote, Louisa died in Washington four years later, also from the effects of a stroke. She had grown increasingly frail after her husband's death, claiming exhaustion, from 50 years of living with him. So he was uh, buried in this family vault and, uh, in, in Quincy at first. And later, uh, he was, his coffin was moved to the, to the Adams Crypt in the United First Parish Church, uh, along with his parents in Quincy, and uh, along with his wife, Louisa, as well. He, he had a mischievous grandson when they transferred the coffin years later his, he had a grandson who was curious about what he looked like, and he was able to get the workman to take the top, top off the coffin. And uh, there was a, there was gla- he was under his body was under glass, and he noticed that the, John Quincy had a short, stubby beard. And as they say, when people die, uh, your hair and hair and nails grow for a few weeks, but phone calls taper off. <laughs> the the death of John Quincy, uh, the news spread quickly in the country because of telegraph. And, uh, and that was the, you know, well, the beginning of the communication revolution, almost instantaneous communication. And his, uh, when they moved his body, when his body traveled north, I believe, I'm pretty sure by train, and it was a pilgrimage transporting a sacred relic, the 500-mile trip. Multitudes came to pay their respects. This was a big deal. Uh, in New York City, thousands lined the streets for a, while well, his body passed on a four-mile route to City Hall, where his body lay in state. After his death, Theodore Parker, a Massachusetts Unitarian minister, wrote this about John Quincy Adams, quote, The slave has lost a champion who gained a new ardor and new strength the longer he fought. America has lost a man who loved her with his heart. Religion has lost a supporter. Freedom, an unfailing friend, and mankind, a noble vindicator of our inalienable rights. In 1891, the Adams family crypt there in Quincy was open to the public, 
It's a national shrine, and it's uh, it's unique because there are there you have the graves of two American presidents, the first parish church in Quincy, Massachusetts. Again, uh, John Quincy loved books. He said he wrote this quote: "To live without a Cicero and a Tacitus at hand seems to me as if it was a privation of one of my limbs." Another quote by John Quincy Adams: "Quote." Literature has been the charm of my life, and could I have carved out my own fortune to literature, would my whole life have been devoted. I have been a lawyer for bread and a statesman at the call of my country. I think actually he enjoyed, you know, being a politician. He wouldn't admit it. Uh, William Henry Harrison wrote this about John Quincy Adams, quote, It is said that he is stiff and abstracted in his opinions, which are drawn from books exclusively. John Patrick Diggins, another historian, wrote about John Quincy Adams, quote, John Quincy Adams, America's most learned president, knew seven languages. He impressed Alex de Tocqueville with his fluent French, read the classics in Latin and Greek, and stayed abreast of the latest developments in science. He saw himself as an educator as well as a philosopher, one who would lead public opinion rather than follow it. He favored conviction over-compromise, and prefer discipline to convenience, a rare president. And during, at one point, he was having a meeting with a British ambassador with respect to the Oregon Territory, and they were having an argument. And that was, and so, and he said this, quote, I do not know what you claim, nor what you do not claim. You claim India. You claim Africa. You claim perhaps a piece of the moon. No, I have not heard that you claim exclusively any part of the moon, but there is not a spot on this inhabitable globe that I could affirm you do not claim. Another story: John Quincy and uh, and Josiah Quin- John Quincy Adams and Josiah Quincy came to Harvard to see their friend, Justice Chief Justice or Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story teach. And Story had them both sit by him on the platform. And after he started his talk, both of them promptly fell asleep. And Judge Story said to the students, quote, Gentlemen, you see before you a melancholy example of the evil effects of early rising. <laughs> so the, the students roared with laughter. Another quote by John Quincy Adams. Quote, Nature's God commands the slave to rise and on the oppressor's head to break his chain. Roll years of promise. Rapidly roll round till not a slave shall on this earth be found. Paul C. Nagel wrote this about John Quincy Adams, quote, John Quincy Adams delighted in accompanying old friends on fishing expeditions. He enjoys singing songs in French with his granddaughters, and Harvard students cheered his lectures. Now, he had, he had major depression, uh, which dogged him his entire life. Uh, and when Adams died in 1848, the, the public mourning exceeded anything previously seen in America. In the 19th century, only the death of Abraham Lincoln would elicit a greater display of national sorrow. Uh, He gave advice, John Quincy, to his son Charles regarding the the struggle against slavery. And he, he said this, quote, Proceed, persevere, never despair, don't give up the ship. That was a reference to this quote by James Lawrence, who died fighting the British and then that became the motto of Oliver Perry in the War of 1812, fighting the British on Lake Erie. For this talk, I read five books, uh, including John Quincy Adams, 
by Harlow Giles Unger, 2012, John Quincy Adams, American Visionary, by Fred Kaplan, 2014. Dear Mr. President, John Quincy Adams, Letters from a Southern Planter's Son, by Stephen Kroll, 2001. The Lost Founding Father, John Quincy Adams and the Transformation of American Politics, by William J. Cooper, 2017. And finally, John Quincy Adams, A Public Life, A Private Life, by Paul C. Nagel, 1997. So in conclusion, John Quincy Adams lived an amazing life, really something. Much of his life was in Europe, uh, you know, because his father was uh, the famous John Adams, looking for help for the American Revolution. John Quincy Adams served as U.S. ambassador to a number of countries, including the, ne the Netherlands, Prussia, uh, Russia, and Great Britain. He, uh, he served one term. His, uh, he was a great champion of, for freedom, fighting slavery, a very brave man. And he did an awful lot for the Smithsonian Institute. I, fi I find him very inspiring because of his, uh, because of all, everything, because he was so knowledgeable, his knowledge of the ancient Greeks and Romans. He was a good man. He was ahead of his times promoting astronomy and promoting inf infrastructure for our country. God bless John Quincy Adams, a man who served his country well. Next time we'll talk about Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. And hope you weren't bored to tears. And uh, hope you find a good history book to read. Live long and prosper. May the force be with you. And uh, take care and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You might consider checking out past episodes, our podcast channel, and our website, Adventures in History with Peter J. Ray at PeterJRay.com. If you like what you're hearing, you might consider sharing it with friends. It helps a lot. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Take care, and I'll see you next time.